It's oh, a strange good. film to watch with your parents. Yes, it is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Showtime, folks! Come listen to the Uncut Gems podcast, a weekly show where we talk about movies that no one else wants to talk about. This is episode 147, and my name is Randy. And my name is Jakob. Now, the word superstar is greatly overused in this business, but for our next guest, the word superstar is totally inadequate. Whenever we do a show starring Roy Scheider, we can count on her to be right there with us. I feel humbled to be in her presence. From deep, deep in here, let me lay on you, the president of the totally fictitious Roy Scheider fan club, <laughs> Sarah Buttery. <laughs> the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> Fantastic. Great. Awesome. I worked for five minutes on that. And all that jazz. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've got a few. I've got a few more, <laughs> and we have one more voice. And what can I say about our next guest? This is the man who would be my choice as a modern day saint. When this podcast started, this cat was shuffling along right there next to us. Let me lay on you a great entertainer, a great humanitarian, and my dearest, dearest friend of over two years. Let's hear it for, and you can clap if you wanna, Mr. Jack Luke Sharp. Oh wow, that was, that was actually quite poignant. Oh, well done, thank you very much for inviting oh, me back on. Um, I don't know what to say after that. Yeah, um, I'm really How excited. Are you guys? I'm, I'm I'm doing really well. I'm I'm really excited excited to talk about this because I think having to having watched Cabaret and Lena, I think it's all accumulated to to this point with um, all that jazz. So this should be interesting to talk about because I've got some thoughts, as I'm sure oh, everybody else awesome. does. <laughs> Oh, yeah, awesome. Thanks okay. <laughs> well, did you actually apply some twang when you were <laughs> introducing did, yeah. Jack? I, I was trying. Like, I was trying like, a little. Like Daniel Craig and Logan Lucky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I guess that's my go-to because I did that accent not too bad. I'm going to get naked. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't drift into my Ben Verena's as I had hoped. Or but anyway, just <laughs> practice. Just kind of. <laughs> just closely to Adam Driver in the same film. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of some of everyone in the film. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can't do accents. I can do one accent. West Virginia, I guess. Okay. Well, you can also do um, a, a half decent Arnie, and then your phrase, Not like bad. as Jimmy Carr would say, like you need a, everyone needs a phrase to get them into into. Um, True. So do you know what your phrase is? What is it? <laughs> oh wait. Uh, Mutilate her. <laughs> Murdered, raped, and mutilated her. Yeah. Yeah. M- mutilated, mutilated her. <laughs> okay. and, and I guess I have a John Wayne somewhere. But anyway, the, these other voices have no reason to emerge today. Uh, John, okay. John, how do you do, what do you do for a John Wayne? Well, that'll be the day. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Let's move oh, swiftly God. on, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes, let's. Okay. 
Hopefully, you were with us last week. We began Bob Fosse Month. We talked about his first and third directorial efforts in a double episode, a massive episode. We talked about Sweet Charity and Lenny. We're going to continue today with some more Fosse, Fosse, Fosse. Because we're the Fosse Posse. Because we're the Fosse Posse. (laughs) who we are this month. So let's run through what's going on quickly over at our Patreon page before we get into today's chat, um, which if you haven't figured it out by now is all that jazz. And all that jazz. Every time you're going to say all that jazz, I'm going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Clip's going to be entirely worn out by the end of the day. Uh, so yeah, over on our Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash uncut gems pod. Uh, this week we just released, at least at the point of the release of today's episode, uh, we just released our monthly tie-in and we talked about Cabaret. That's Fosse's second film, his revisionist musical. We had an amazing discussion. Jack was there. Uh, we were joined by Cabaret super fan, Randy Perry. Um, and that Patreon Cabaret episode is free. So Go check it out. Well, while you're at it, go check out October's Patreon tie-in where we talked about The Exorcist, and that is also a free episode. So go check that out. Tell your friends about it. Um, And also our Soderbergh Patreon conversation for this month. That was released a couple weeks ago. That was High Flying Bird. And over on our Cassavetes Marathon, we're getting farther and farther from its opening night and closer and closer to its closing night. In two weeks, we will release our 11th Cassavetes episode of 12, mind you. Um, and we're talking about love streams. So um, another great chat. Cassavetes has been amazing all is, year. So go go check that out whenever it comes by. As a teaser, just think about it. This is John Cassavetes and London Empire. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> That's not a selling point. That's not the selling point it should be, man. Depends who, depends who you ask. <laughs> I suppose. Okay. Uh, Okay. So that's this month on Patreon. So we're busy over there as usual. If you happen to like us or you appreciate for some reason how we ramble, ramble, ramble ourselves into cinematic revelations, then for just $3 a month, three pounds, three euros, 450 Canadian, uh, you can join us there. We have over 70 episodes of a catalog that you can go through. Some of cinema's better known films are there, uh, courtesy of our discussions. We've got auteur marathons, a full David Lynch marathon from 2022, led by the great filmmaker, Niccolo Grasso, high neck, the John Cassavetes marathon. As I mentioned, that's nearing completion and our roster of Soderbergh's better known films. It's already on uh, Patreon and that project's winding down as well. So, but if you're not interested in a subscription, no worries. You can leave a one-time donation if you're so inclined to ko-fi.com slash uncutgemspod. That's ko-fi.com. Or if you're willing and able, if you could leave a review for us, preferably a favorable review, that would be wonderful. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts (laughs) and do that. If you do have complaints, we'd much sooner you email us rather than dive bombing our presence on these places with your negativity. Um, And a big thing that you can do, you can always ever do this, just tell your movie loving friends about us. So, and also, please and thank you. Yes. Please and thank you. And tell them about the Exorcist and Cabaret episodes. And there's a few other episodes that heat. are for also free. heat this year. Heat, heat from this year. The thing from 2022. We talked so. about heat for longer than it takes to watch it. Think about it. <laughs> and, it's, and it's a long, long proceeding. Okay. So Hello, that's it for yeah. the announcements. It's a superhero We're, film, is what it is. Sorry. It is. <laughs> I would agree. Okay. 
That's it for the announcements. I'm excited to get into this. So let's officially commence the proceedings with the annual meeting of the Roy Scheider Fan Club. Pop the Dexedrine. Let's talk about Bob Fosse's penultimate film, 1979's All That Jazz. And all that jazz. Right. Ah, Joe, I don't want to go out with Michael Graham. I don't want to date. I have no more small talk left. I don't want to fool around. I don't want to play games. And I don't want to fight. I just want to love you. I try to give you everything I can give. Oh, you give all right. Presents, clothes. I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. That's good. Now, it's probably worth mentioning that we talked about all that jazz before back in February 2022. This was before I joined the show and Jacob and Niccolo talked about all that jazz uh, in a retrospective along with Sweeney Todd and Dancer in the Dark. So that's on our Patreon. Uh, And they were talking about subversive musicals. Uh, But today we're planning to give it a thorough once over uh, as we are going through all of Fosse's films this month. And for anyone who doesn't know, this this is sort of in response to my picking the lineup for the month because I'm a huge fan of of this movie. So oh, oh, oh I need to hijack the show then. Okay, I have to do this <laughs> because like okay, the reason we're doing this, you hijack the show as in like you you've picked the lineup for November because I did because Randy birthday yeah, yeah this this ep- this is this is Randy's birthday episode okay. And it's not just a birthday episode. This is this is birthday number fifty. It is. This is quite round, okay. And with that, I'm I'm hijacking the show. I'm so sorry. I have to do this. Okay, well, I've, I've got a few. Go I've it. got a few messages to to play out. So here's one message from from a voice you may recognize. Happy happy birthday to the one and only Randy Burrows. You've reached quite the milestone in your life, and I'm. So, so happy to have met you. Thanks to this podcast. Thanks to Jakub. I always love listening to you guys talk about everything. And I love all of the inputs and ideas and jokes that you've added to this podcast. And it always makes it an absolute joy to listen to. I'm very happy to call you my friend. And I can't wait to join you guys again, hopefully in the near future. So happy, happy birthday, Randy. So that was Nick. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I've got you, a few. Nick. I've got a few more. I've, I've got one re- re- real short one because this is from a man of few words, and then I couldn't really download this on the board, so I'll have to do this like this. And it's like you. Okay, this is from Ian. <laughs> Hi, Randy. It's Ian here. I'm told you turned fifty, and well, happy birthday. Um, you've been around for half a century now you're an old man <laughs> and uh, hopefully you've got another half century in you that's it as i said like a man of few words uh, thank you so, ian so that's ian 
Also, this is not done. Like, I'm not done yet. Hold on. Also, we've got um, a message. This is this is via text because they didn't end up um, didn't end up having enough time to record anything. So I've got a message from Kevin and Aaron from the podcast that wouldn't die. Guys. Oh, <clears throat> so I've got happy 50th birthday. I hope you celebrate by rewatching Blood for Dracula. Actually, don't do that. That would be horrible. <laughs> happy birthday, nonetheless. <laughs> That's from Kevin and Aaron. Uh, and also, finally, I have got this, and this is also a voice you may recognize. Hello and happy birthday, Randy. This is Jackson Boren calling from sunny California just to wish you a great day and thank you for your friendship and your balanced perspective. Every time Jakob and myself will throw out a hot take or high praise for all sorts of random movies, <laughs> uh, always enjoy the conversations that we get to have. Uh, so Here's to uh, the next year, and you are now uh, my second favorite Canadian in their 50s after the great Keanu Reeves. Cheers. <laughs> See, what Number a... Two. <laughs> exactly. So that was Jackson. Thank you, Jack. Thanks, Jackson. So as it was from all of us here, happy birthday, Randy. Well, thank you, guys, very much. Brilliant. Can I just say something as well? Because sure, Absolutely, yes. <laughs> this, is just, this, is, this is a personal thing as well as... Um, as a as a work thing, I, I, I've been on here with Jakub. I've been on here with Nick. This is a totally different experience when you're on here with Jakub Randa. You've brought the best out of Jakub and vice versa. Oh, Jesus. And, and you are a power team <laughs> of, of of really good fun. I listen to this podcast when I drive to work. I listen to this podcast when I drive home. It's so fun and it's so entertaining because of you two on here, right? That even when I'm not on here and I don't watch the films, I'm trying to do a back catalogue to keep up with you. So. Not only have you been generous, warming since day one of joining this crew, Randa, are you a, a really nice person to be around as well? So also happy birthday, and you do not look fifty. You're 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 a good forty at all, so don't worry about that. But just thank you very much for being on here as well, and um and and for for giving this a second wind and and for many more years. I I I can't I can't wait to indulge myself of talking absolute shit with, with the likes of you two and hopefully with, with Sarah when we get another Roy Schneider on so thank oh, you very much Schneider? are we doing a male you know, <laughs> deuce bigelow male gigolo well, <laughs> let's, let's, we'll get on to that another day but happy birthday Randy and I hope you've had a really oh, nice uh, a, a nice time Fun thank little fact Jack took a took a job specifically on the other uh, in the other corner of the UK so he could actually just listen to the entire podcast on his commute. Yes, yeah, I loved it. I love it. <laughs> Three and a half hour drive. Don't ever, 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 ever <laughs> comment on my dedication ever again. I do my due diligence on this podcast. It's just he, he really took it. He really took it to you know to himself. Like this is. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's all right. I just called out to all these people on gems. <laughs> Told him once he doesn't listen. And he yeah. goes like, oh Jesus. <laughs> he, he may have, he may or may not have broke my heart. And I will never forgive him for that, but it's okay. Christmas is going to be cold this year for someone. I'm not going to be me for me. Uh, look, guys, thank you very much. I appreciate that very, very much. Okay. All right. Um, thank you. I, I'm sort of warmed on the insides here. So, okay, let's let's get down to business, though, because um, we've already I'm accepted... What a moment. Accepted the minutes. We've accepted the minutes of last year's Roy Scheider fan club meeting. So it's time for new business. Um, Let's talk about All That Jazz. All That Jazz, 1979 film, was directed and co-written by Bob Fosse. It was produced and co-written by Robert Allen Arthur and stars Roy Scheider, 
who his birthday would be this week, I believe, if he were still with us. So his birthday was November 10th, and he passed away in 2008, the late, great Roy Scheider. So he is the the lead here, um, but right behind him in a way, Anne Reinking mentioned her, whose birthday was also November 10th. So her birthday would be this week, and she recently passed away in 2020. Film also stars Leland Palmer, Ben Vereen, Jessica Lange, Cliff Gorman, and Blinkin' You Miss Them. John Lithgow's in here, Wallace Shawn is in here, and CCH Pounder's uh, film debut is uh, in here for us to behold. So Sandal Bergman. And Sandal Bergman is in here. And he calls her Sandal. Hey, Sandal, can you do this? Yeah, like all the dancers (laughs) go by their real names. That's right. Perfect. Uh, We get a lot of Sandal Bergman in this, just saying. So all that jazz. If you happen to listen to last week's episode, when we talked about Lenny, the following will be very familiar. Um, So with all, all that jazz is Bob Fosse's autobiographical tale about the days of his life around the release of Lenny. So last week's behind the scenes discussion about Lenny is precisely the plot summary of all that jazz because it follows uh, a director's workaholic days, sex addicted nights, and I guess drug addicted in-betweens of a film and Broadway director, a philanderer and an absentee dad. This is Joe Gideon played by Roy Scheider. Um, a very, very, very loose cover for Fosse himself, of course. Um, and meanwhile, Gideon is embroiled in a tedious edit of a film about a comedian. So, oh yeah, and meanwhile, he's also working on the launch of a new Broadway uh, musical, a revival. And we see that this frantic work schedule uh, produces tremendous stress, drug dependency, terrible self-care, and can only lead to one thing. Death, man. Death man. Death man. It's another weird death man. All right. So uh, in Fosse's version of, of these events, the real story, the pressure of directing Lenny and choreographing a Chicago revival led to a very serious heart attack and he required open heart surgery. I think it was a double bypass, um, as they mentioned in all that jazz. This is more or less depicted in the film. This episode in Fosse's life inspired his next story to be one about love and death because Fosse was really sort of considering these these life-changing events and hospitalization. So he teamed up with his friend Robert Allen Arthur and they were going to adapt the book Ending by Hilma Wolitzer, uh, which covered life, death, family problems, but that ended up falling through. So Fosse turned his attention to sort of recounting and writing a story around his recent experiences and Shirley MacLaine actually claims to have given Bob Fosse the idea to make a musical about your own life. Uh, Fosse had said that he doesn't really remember Shirley MacLaine making that suggestion but MacLaine said said she did. Uh, All that jazz began production with Columbia Studios with around a seven million dollar budget um, Hollywood royalty was considered for the role of Joe Gideon. Jack Lemmon was considered, but he was he was too old, so he didn't get too far into the, the talks process. The Kardashians, but you know, <laughs> uh, no, not the Kardashians. Hollywood royalty. <laughs> uh, John Voight, Gene Hackman, George Segal, Jack Nicholson, Alan Bates, Elliot Gould—they were all considered. John Voight even read for the part, but the man who got it was Richard Dreyfus if you can believe it. And this was around the time that he was getting the rave reviews for Goodbye Mr. Chips, which he would eventually win an Oscar for. 
After a week or so of rehearsals in New York City, Dreyfus decided, I'm going to visit my good buddy, Roy Scheider, who also lived in New York. So he goes and visits Scheider and he tells Scheider, you know what? I don't think I can do this. Uh, for starters, I don't think Fosse likes me and I don't really like Fosse that much, even though like a lot of people speculated that Dreyfus didn't have self-confidence in his own song and dance skills. Um, but anyway, so he was pondering dropping out. Um, but Scheider says to Dreyfus, you're already a week into rehearsals. You'd better tell Fosse. So anyway, Scheider was really interested with this little nugget of uh, information. So he happened to have the same agent as Bob Fosse. So he got on the horn with his agent and said, you got to get me a copy of this script and I would love to meet Fosse. So then this happened. He got a script and read it and he was in touch with Fosse and he was, he was trying to convince Fosse that he would, he would be the, the man for it. Um, Fosse wasn't necessarily convinced, but he said, look, Roy, if you come over to my place and read it with me, then we'll see. So if you can come over like each night for a week or so, um, then we'll, we'll see. And Scheider did that. He went to Bob Fosse's place and read with him for a week or 10 days just in the evenings. And uh, then, yeah, Scheider convinced Fosse that he was the man for the job. But when Fosse took the name back to Columbia, said, okay, we've got a replacement for Dreyfus, Columbia didn't want anything to do with Scheider. They wanted Warren Beatty at the time. But Fosse fought, fought, fought for Scheider. He said, this is the guy. This is the guy. Uh, sort of like Mulholland Drive. This is the girl. Anyway, Scheider remained forever grateful for Fosse's support and uh, has called uh, Fosse a great mentor and one of the best directors for him that he ever worked with in terms of helping him with his craft. And in interviews with Scheider, you'll always see that he refers to uh, Bob Fosse as Mr. Fosse. Mr. Fosse so he sort of held him in, in high regard. Anne Reinking, she was cast in the role of Joe Gideon's girlfriend, and she's basically playing herself as she was Fosse's real-life girlfriend for the years of the Chicago revival and, and Lenny. So she's basically playing herself. And in, I don't know if we'll get to it or not, but Fosse, in sort of a hilariously cruel move, he made her audition multiple times for this role uh, before <laughs> he let her have it. She, she nearly didn't get it. <laughs> so anyway, that's true. Jesus. Uh, so Jessica Lang is in this as well. Her character, Angel of Death, was based on Fosse's first wife, Joan McCracken, who was uh, hugely influential in Fosse's early career. And she passed away at age 43 in 1961. So uh, anyway, she is sort of represented as uh, Joan McCracken. Uh, and despite all the focus on Fosse's health during the production in the script and in real life, Fosse Fosse actually wanted to try Gideon himself, but he was told, God, you'd never survive the shoot. But then tragically and ironically, it was producer, co-writer Robert Allen Arthur who passed away during production in November of 1978. So 45 years ago this month. God, a lot of tragedy and sickness around this backstory. The production rolled along okay until it eventually ran out of money. So Fosse went back to the Columbia money banks and they said, no way. But the Columbia execs uh, decided maybe there's something we can do. So they invited Alan Ladd Jr. from 20th Century Fox to come over and sort of see an incomplete cut of all that jazz. Basically, it was a, a conglomeration of the dailies. And 
Ladd Jr. really liked it and Fox was flush with cash after Star Wars. So they entered an agreement with Columbia where Fox would pay another three, three and a half to five million for Fosse to finish the film. And then Fox would have distribution rights in North America and Columbia would have distribution rights internationally. Fosse completed the film and then he took another laborious eight or nine months to do the edit. All That Jazz was finally released in December 1979. It made decent box office, around $40 million, which is a nice tidy sum. A lot of critics really liked it. Vincent Canby from the New York Times really liked it. But a lot didn't like it because they couldn't get past what they called Fosse's self-indulgence. We'll get to it. They saw an autobiography on film as just Fosse's ego run wild. Uh, Leonard Malton disliked it. He said there's nice moments, but it's an interminable ending and self-indulgent and negative toward the industry. The film community adored it, though. It won, it co-won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, along with Akira Kurosawa's Kagamusha. It was nominated for six BAFTAs, won two, was nominated for nine Academy, of War, uh, nine Academy Awards, won four. Um, art direction, costumes, editing, music. Uh, Scheider was nominated for Best Director. Fosse was nominated for uh, Best did I say actor? Sorry. I think you said Scheider was... I mean, I don't know. Like Maybe he yeah. was involved. Scheider <laughs> was nominated for Best Actor. Fosse was nominated for Best Director. Um, and for a third time, this was Fosse being nominated for Best Director against Coppola. But this time, neither of them won. Stanley Kubrick saw it and Kramer said, versus Kramer, baby. <laughs> <laughs> it was Kramer versus Kramer's year. Uh, Stanley Kubrick saw this film and he said, this may be the best film that I've ever seen. So that finally brings us to today. Sarah, tell us what is your history with this film and how much do you love it? I love this film a lot. Um, Believe it or not, this is only the second time I've seen it. I think when you guys covered it before, I think I was meant to be on that episode and then I can't remember if it was around the time that I broke my ankle. or There was a very good excuse why I couldn't come on. Yeah, but I think I presented a doctor's <laughs> note, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I broke my ankle. I got a sick note, guys. Um, yeah. So that, funnily enough, was the first time I watched it. So all of my watches of this film have somehow been connected to you guys. So hopefully that's uh, a compliment. I'm so, I'm so happy we can bring this to you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it twice. was, it was going to, yeah, twice. it was going to happen at some point because it is, it's on uh, Jaws for a Minute, which is one of my podcasts. It's on our like list of Roy Scheider films when we eventually get to that um, series. So uh, our paths would have crossed at some point, but yeah, so only the second time I've watched it, I watched it today um, in preparation for this and I loved it the first time I saw it. And then I, I think I loved it even more this time. Um <laughs> I'm, as we know, president of the non-existent Roy Scheider fan club. So obviously, Respect. any film that yes. he's <laughs> any film that he's in, I kind of gravitate towards. But I, I think actually, no, I don't think I'll, I'll be confident. This is his best performance um, of the films that I have seen um, him in, which is a fair few. There's a couple that I'm missing still, but yeah, I I would fairly confidently say that I think this is Roy Scheider's best performance. And there are elements of this this film that I don't know if I dislike, but they're just kind of like interesting and a bit 
out there. <laughs> I was more comfortable with it this time around because I think last time I had like the voice of my co-host MJ in my head, which was just like, yeah, I liked it until the ending and then it sucked. Um, well, I don't, th- he still likes this film. I think he just thought that it labored its point a little too hard in the end. So I don't know if that was just sort of like playing on my mind that I liked it the first time I saw it, but I didn't like it as much as I did watching it this time around. Cause I think I just, I don't know. Everything about it just, just seemed to work for me more this time than it had previously. So yeah, I, I like this film quite a bit. Interested cool. what you guys think about it. I know one person who absolutely loves it. So <laughs> we're in good company. <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go to you, Jack. I'm really curious why it is this is your new favorite film of all time. <laughs> like we, we all know that like you're the wild card in here because I have yeah. a thing. That, I, I knew like straight away, like everyone, everyone on the panel, I knew where, where they stand. Mr. Jack is the mystery man here. <laughs> um, I, I, well, I won't keep the mystery for for too long. Uh, I don't, I don't do any any research uh, if I can help it to go into these type of films. Bar that once I'm into, once I know that you guys want to cover something, I'll try and cover as much as I can. If there's any sort of documentaries or such that we do with The Exorcist, I, I said when when we first did Cabaret that Bob Fosse is, is is one sort of director within my cinephile journey that I've not actively avoided, but it's never um, sort of come to me in other ways if I've ever found these Blu-rays or on television so forth so so on so I said on the cabaret that I I like I like the idea of cabaret I just think the execution's a little bit off then we got to Lenny and I I feel like this is where we've hit the pitch now we've got a a guy who, who, who understands an edit understands the material and is getting away from the musical identity and crafting something else now with with all with um all that jazz, I feel like it's 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 a bit of both worlds, which is which is positive. And it's also a negative. I enjoy this. I think this is probably his magnum opus. Uh, I, granted, I haven't seen well, well at this point in time, I haven't seen Star Eight. Uh, you know, with 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 the uh, well, with with yes, I have. Yes, <laughs> I've accidentally watched it for this podcast. Um, but it definitely feels like a director has put his blood, sweat, and tears into this project. To try and get that, not sort of like iconicness, but trying and to his just arteries. get arteries. Yeah, well, yeah, putting blood, sweat, and and his and his heart on, on the line. But it feels like he's trying to get his consciousness in, into into film to for it then to to last the the the, the days that he's not going to be here. And watching it, it's quite a powerhouse. It, it feels like now you couldn't do this in under two hours. And granted, I think it just pushes it to. I think it's was it two two nine. So it's not it's not like it it stays out for its um, oversides it's welcome but it's definitely a project that that really unabashedly but well it throws everything into this the one thing that really does save this because I don't want to get too much into because there's a lot to talk about is um is is Roy Scheider like there is no doubt this is his best performance like Sarah said he's so whimsical and so warming it's actually unreal because with Lena I didn't know what to expect from Dustin Hoffman because I find him quite a cold characteristic of an actor. There's nothing much that I've seen him when the 70s and 60s, which is such a blind spot again for me, I'm trying to cover, where I, I could feel he could nail Lenny, and, and he did. But I still find that he's not a very warm, warm actor, and therefore, therefore I find like an emotional engagement with that story very difficult. It made me more words than one. Here, it completely rests on his shoulders. That scene where he's with his daughter, I find just like... I just love it. I could live in that sequence. There's nothing to it. It's just two people talking 
essentially shit in front of a in front of um <laughs> tra- training training his daughter to dance in front of a, a mirror but it's like it's just it's effortless to watch it's so engaging i find that the film itself is like that this is really interesting but there's something here that is missing for me like it was in cabaret and if i can i can't tell if bob fossey was was in the wrong decades to make films if he was in the 1940s or and, and or the early 50s Ooh. With all the nudity, I think. No, 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 I, no, grand, no. I, I'm talking about like that. that that's him coming with this into the seventies, where I think like Bob. cinema cinema allows him to sort <laughs> of make those what? decisions. Yeah. But like, but like I so said, that, that's him like whimsical nature of the seventies allowing him to get away with it, and I think it's fine. But the core mentality he puts into his films, it's like Capra, like it, it's 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 that good. Like he he could be could have been one of the biggest directors, American directors of the forties and the fifties. But when he's in the 70s, he has this sort of free hit of incorporating these sort of whimsical fairy tale themes almost with incredibly strong weighted depth and emotion there, especially with what we've seen so far, Cabaret, Lenny, and this, really, really strong themes. So I kind of find it like a catch-22. Catch I just think he's in from the wrong generation, but he's allowed to do these exceptional pieces in the generation that he was, that he was, well, he was allowed to make them in, which is the 1970s. I just find there's something missing here for me. It'd be interesting to get into this. And I do think it's a little bit too long in the tooth, especially what, what Sarah compared it with, with, with a, with a co-host about the, the, the climax is like, we're really sort of digging deep in here and it's going on and on. But again, I think it's excellent how it's edited as it, as it was in letter. I think it's excellently produced as it was as cabaret. I think it's thematically really interesting. It's engrossing. It's inviting, which it was like in Lenny and Cabaret. I just think there's something missing here, and I don't quite know what it is. So it's been interesting to discuss it, but we'll help you find it. Yes, I'm hoping so because <laughs> there, there's some. Don't get me wrong. There's something here where he is outstanding. Like I, I think it, you know, we, 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 Babylon came out a few, a few um, well, last year, and you know, it's a three-hour film that touches on incredibly like a rich story, loads of themes, but it takes three hours to get there. I think to to be to be credit to to Bob Fawcett to get this all cramped into a two-hour film, and it, it may be a an issue of, of of contention we talk about later, but uh, it's actually quite shocked that he managed to, to to sort of succeed here with with the amount of depth he's got to got to go into. Um, and I remember we talked about Lenny just very quickly about like um, he said after Lenny that people were going at him for not making films that he should make, like films that represent him. So he made the ultimate film about him and then people still attacked him for it. So I do I do understand his plight of not being sort of welcomed within his era in a, in a way. He, he, he was like Coppola in a way, ironically enough, going against him all the time, that he was unraveling the 1970s as it was happening. And to release this in the same year as Apocalypse Now, which is one director going through the shit in in uh, in Vietnam, which which I think probably was was shot on um, on um, on well shot in Vietnam, and then you've also got uh, Bob Fosse literally in the shit telling his story about giving his 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 body and he and he and his ultimately soul to film. The the two very interesting directors for me. So I've got a lot of respect for this work. But I'm just wanting to figure out perhaps what's missing because at the end of this podcast, one it usually changes for the the better or the worse. So I'll I'll wait and see. But it was a pleasure to to watch this. It was it was excellent to get it off my watch list as well. So thank you for for having it, uh, having it on. But 
uh, I don't know. I just hope it's not. I don't want to watch this again as well. I don't want to go back to Cabaret. What? I don't want to. Watch, it's too. It's too much for me. I find this. Okay. Pa- this was painful to watch <laughs> in more ways than one. But we'll we'll get to that. I'm sure. Okay, uh, Jakob, What about well, you? Uh, uh, look, um, look. As in, you're look, on the record already. But let's look. Twenty three thirty four. And Jesus said. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. <laughs> what are you wow. talking about? Like, I don't want to watch this again. This movie's amazing. <laughs> I'm kind of like Sarah in here, as in, like, I watched this for the first time last year when we were doing this sort of like mini retrospective of mu- musicals. One of which was not the best, and that's Sweeney Todd. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And I, I have a feeling, like I have, uh, my recollections are kind of similar. I remember there was just something shy of perfection there for me, and I couldn't just force myself to give a full fat five. And I think I'm kind of, I think I'm getting there, uh, because this is a film where it's, it's for me, it's extremely busy. It's, it's one of those films where a lot of, a lot of stuff is happening. A lot of even jokes are here, just like just dispersed all throughout that you just may not notice on the first pass and they um, and these nuances these lines these sort of camera moves these little nuggets of just cinematic flair they come at you once you've kind of acclimated yourself to the story and now you can just like relish in it a little bit and this is a movie where I actually see. I mean, I'm gonna park the Bob Fosse thing because I have a feeling like Randy has it in it, has, has this in his, in his notes. <laughs> this is gonna be a conversation, but but I'm just having a feeling that you know, y- y- yeah, this is not only the guy's magnum opus when it comes to like directorial flair, but it also just shows shows you how much of a range this guy has because this is the same man who did Sweet Charity just like a decade earlier, like and, and at the same time he was still doing like let's just say like t- tier one canonical broadway musicals like you know with jazz hands and everything you know <laughs> and so so he was just doing that kind of stuff on the stage and he was subverting the template in the cinematic format he was just doing something that no one really else was doing right and in the middle of this you have this sort of gaunt roy scheider who's i think mr method i think at this point because i don't know what he did to his body that he's dehydrated himself so much he looks like he really needs a nap <laughs> it's just so, this guy is such a look at look like if you just want like okay between us two and Sarah, I think like we're probably like in the, in this room in this call we're like the biggest Jaws fans in in the in the room like I'm um, like I yeah. you know I, I'm, I can only go I can only kiss the ring <laughs> but you know but but if you just go by let's just watching Jaws like you, it takes a little while to kind of just a clue into Roy Scheider's let's just say genius in the acting because he's very understated in there and here he he just Bob Bob Fosse just gives him the stage and goes like you. It's yours, Jess. You need to you need to go big or go home. And go big, he did. I think, you know, he went big. I suppose foreigner moment. I'm sorry, but anyway, <clears throat> I really like this film, and it's such a such a clever piece of filmmaking, especially when you start considering like Anne Rankings playing herself. Like there's this his well, there's this young girl who's playing his daughter, but his real daughter is is playing a dancer somewhere in there, and he's just telling her something like, "Can you please not do this here like a, like a dad." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't know. It's and 
and it's also very meta as well because he's this is a movie about about how he was like editing Lenny, but the, but the guy who plays Lenny is not Dustin Hoffman; is the actual guy who was playing Lenny in the play, mm-hmm. or or something. And he's nowhere near as good as Dustin Hoffman is. He's gonna come back um, on my list, um, and and just it feels sometimes it has like these moments where. Like I would never expect this. This is a movie where I, I just I never expected I would just connect this guy to filmmakers that came right after him. Like there are moments in here that you you could see. Like is this something that Spike Lee picked up from Fosse? Like the sort of the the sort of the dolly. That's the Spike Lee dolly. It's here, right? Or is this like is this the kind of editing that like Darren Aronofsky is now fetishizing? Yeah, like, these sort of these quick cuts where you know like pills whatever tape it feels like it's from requiem from for a dream almost right and it's like 20 years ahead of that and this is a guy who would do like musicals with you know with jazz hands and pas de vray and all that shit and all that jazz sorry <laughs> so i really love this film i have to say and i feel like this is one of those where that i really want to watch it again because i've I'm, i have i'm convinced that i'll fish out even more stuff that i missed this is kind of one of those you know like these sort of the salad movies that you just like, oh, corn, you know? It's one of those. Uh, so I love this. Um, I'm super happy I, I got to revisit this for this show. And now, you know, like over to you, Randy. Like tell us, you know, it's a three cool. out of five. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for years, if anyone said, what's your favorite film? This is my go-to answer. And this is my favorite film. I absolutely adore this film. I find it's sad and tragic and touching and sweet and somehow really dialed in and articulate, you know, about these characters' relationships. And it's quite honest too. Um, like like it is it's a it's a complicated character study. And I really dislike the man, <laughs> Bob Fosse, for <laughs> the, the way he treats the women in his wife uh, in his life, like his wife and his girlfriend and his daughter. And That's a Freudian like, slip. Yeah, there you go. It, like that, it's, that sort of bugs me. But but at the same time, like he's a guy just he's desperate for acceptance and validation. And I feel that through throughout this this film. And, you know, to, to respond to the, the critics out there who thought it was an ego trip. Well, Molten. Molten's full of shit. I'm sorry. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a like, point. You know, we but need to I get th- a medic in here. That's kind of what Agreed. I feel about Molten. Jesus. <laughs> I think it's deeply, deeply reflective. And in a way, I think it's his his apology letter. Like he's he's gone through, like he, he, in a way, he's probably saying he barely survived. And, you know, like I have a chance to apologize. And I think this is his apology letter to the women in his life, to be, to be perfectly honest. So that adds this other layer, I think, about... Uh, you know, the, the roles of, of men in society and maybe their struggles with mental health. And it's, it's re it's really layered. And I think there's a, there's a bunch in there. And on top of that, I think it's a mastercraft in cine- cinematic language. Like you were saying, Jacob, like it, the use of music and editing and sound. And like, this is a, this guy's a revolutionary from Broadway and, you know, stage shows and blocking and choreography. And he's finding a place in, in cinema for that as well. So it's like, in a way, it's a very personal thing because that's his flavor and he's bringing that to his film. And I'm just fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how he feels the need to frame his stories, his narratives, this, this whole, almost 
Citizen Kane type of thing. I just don't want to follow a character through their life. You've, you've got these framing devices and this one, this flirting with death imagery, this blurring of the lines between medical and show business. I'm just totally enamored by this imagery and I'm just, I'm fascinated by it. And, and honestly too, I, when I was watching it this time, I was thinking that I'm, I'm thankful to have gone through the, the Cassavetti's journey that we've gone on about this year with Uncut Gems and the Soderbergh journey. Cause I feel <laughs> men behaving poorly. I think Fosse <laughs> is halfway between these guys in a way. I think Fosse really, really likes Cassavetes. And I would say that he definitely knows Cassavetes stuff and likes the types of things that Cassavetes is drilling down to these really personal, intimate character studies and really trying to understand these relationships, but he's got his own style and flavor and, you know, jazzy, <laughs> jazzy stuff going on that he wants to bring to it. But I keep thinking when I see the the editing in here, is this an inspiration for some of sometimes what Soderbergh will use for editing techniques, like in uh, Out of Sight and the Limey, the, the way he, you know, he sort of goes back and forth in time without establishing shots and, and using music from one scene to sort of flow from that scene as on the soundtrack into the, the next cut. It, it's, it's fascinating to me. And then to top it off, my favorite scene in <clears throat> film is this song and dance number at the end. It's absolutely fantastic. It's dark. It's funny. It's heartfelt. It's emotional. Every time I see it, um, you know, I, I, if I don't cry, then I'm like, like this is every once in a while, I will seek this scene out on YouTube just to watch this scene. It's, it's fascinating. And then, and even over the years, this film has grown that much more special to me um, because as I watch it as a parent, I see it as a cautionary tale for how damn it men have to learn how to parent. They have to learn how to be partners. And this generation wasn't there yet um, in the 60s, 70s. And then in 2008, just to share, and I, I really feel that Fosse is reflecting here because I had the same surgery as Fosse did in, in 2008. It was a single, but it was a single bypass but you tend to look at things a little bit differently and you sort of reflect and you, you, you try to understand, you know, why are you here and what do I need to do and, and the value of your relationships. And I, I honestly, I see that in what this film is. So, you know, I don't relate to the drugs and the boozing and the women, you know, so <laughs> there's that, but I feel that this guy is on a bit of a, a journey to, reconcile things because he knows that he's he's screwed over people in, in his lives in his life and and their lives um but also he's a fascinating character because professionally he is a guy you would want to work with because his goal is always to make people look good as hard as he can be like there's a scene with a dancer where he sort he rides her and he's sort of rude and yelling at her and singles her out but you know, like she comes to tears when she gets his, his acceptance is like, good job. You did it. Um, good. He says, so like, I, I just, I'm really all over this film. This film means a lot to me. So, um, but enough of my rambling, let's sort of jump into this and maybe we can start by properly debunking Leonard Malton. He and other critics, <laughs> <laughs> if that's okay with the panel who call this a self, uh, indulgent, egotistical, you know, it's based on Fosse's life. It's an autobiography. Maybe it is egotistical, but is that a big problem? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Uh, what do you guys think? I think, I mean, it's kind of the whole point of this film, right? Like it's surprising to hear 
that that is someone's criticism of it because I don't know how you could make a film that's so close to your own life and not have some of your own ego in there. So it's just kind of a weird criticism, but also like there's... It, you said something earlier, Jakob, like that it's it's so close to so close to reality in terms of like him directing Lenny and Chicago at the same time and like bringing that into this, even though it's like a different film and a different musical he's making, <laughs> and the you know characters like his his real life girlfriend having to audition to play his girlfriend, which is very very funny, um, <laughs> and I think that one of the dancers is played. Um, so Victoria is the dancer who I think he like he sleeps with in the beginning and then he sort of berates for not mm-hmm. dancing well enough. Um, the person who that really happened to is in this film as well. So like all of these things where it's like very close to what really happened, but also made up and fantastical. And it's like, that's exactly what this film is, right? It's towing that line between what really happened and what is kind of imagined and choreographed and directed by Gideon in this film but also Fosse if we're we're looking at it as as autobiographical which is semi-autobiographical but I don't know how you could make a film like this that's so close to someone's life and not have ego in there I just think it's kind of a I don't know who this joker is that wrote this review, oh, but, Moulton? Oh. Like we've, yeah. we've, we've, we've had, he's had it coming, you know, like <laughs> yeah. he's had a, he's had a voice this year. We've hit him a couple times. He's like, in my bad books. He's in yeah. my bad books now. He's, so. one of, yeah, he's one of those who also keeps berating Cassavetes, like with Paul and Kale, like they can both just go and do one. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say, and, and insofar as there is ego in here, I, I don't have, one bit of problem with that and i would even go so far as to say that his ego is probably tempered to a point because i think the only character in all that jazz that looks like an asshole is is joe gideon for his treatment of other people at times Mm -hmm. like i think that he's it's a very you know favorable and and kind portrayal of all these other people in his in his life you know maybe except for john lithgow but i think that's sort of another little story <laughs> but, in his pre-blowout sort of <laughs> pre-blowout lithgow yeah oh, such a peach but you know like, like i like i don't know like some some critics i think they just assent, like I, I i get we all have tastes and whatever i mean i don't necessarily see myself as a critic but by virtue of just talking about films i suppose i i am one jesus but you know um <laughs> like i get we all have tastes and we have our own opinions we and and we vibe with things that we do um but you know like if i if i had a job of a film critic at like the LA Times. I think you'll be just like, oh, maybe maybe I should take this seriously, right? Um, so because I just like write on my shitty little blog that no one ever reads, so I, I don't care. So you know, but <laughs> <clears throat> but you know, like the point is, like no one ever gave like shit to like Spielberg for just like. Could you imagine the self indulgence doing the Fablemans a film about himself? <gasps> How yeah. dare he! Like what? Are, like yeah. what? The audacity! Like, just what are you people on? Like, the guys just like some, you know, like an artist is, is allowed to have demons, and and like some, and self indulgence is not is not necessarily a sin. I would say, like, it, you know, it's 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 a matter for the artist to kind of know when and how to indulge 
so that they would take the viewer on this journey with them. And then if they don't know how to do this correctly, you know, my Michael Bay film comes out. That's kind of, you know, that's, that's, that's what you get. But I feel like, I think Fosse is doing a stand-up job in here. And, and I, I told you, like, the ending is exactly... I, I don't even know how to how to even criticize this. Like this is you know, like I, I know it's like a thirty minutes stint. Like if you're not into music, I suppose maybe we're just like oh boy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like a twenty five percent of the film, right? But it's it's a it's a magnificent piece. Specifically, if you if you actually look at the guy's career and you just think for a second, like this is a guy who does musicals, and in 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 his film career he doesn't really do musicals that well he does anti-musicals almost right he's he specifically goes out of his way to subvert what a musical is uh and then he finishes with almost like a prelude to to, uh, almost in in like a musical sequence that would go and inspire terry gilliam's entire iconography wow (laughs) like it's (laughs) Like it's it's wonderful, and I yeah. So I feel I, I feel like you no know, Len, Lenny. I mean, maybe maybe Lenny was about Leonard Moulton. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> what a plot twist! <laughs> That's it. Wow, there's yeah. a connection. <laughs> maybe he was sore. Maybe or maybe Moulton like went to see Lenny, thinking it was about him, and he goes like, "It's uh, a different yeah. Lenny." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> left that film feeling sorely disappointed that it was exactly. not about him because <laughs> so, like you know like, in your, anyone in their right mind watches that this like unless they walk into the film with like a preconceived notion like ready to hate this um like you um, unless you're like an, you're an average joe off the street and you're just like i don't know like i don't like songs in my, in my movies you know or something like that i suppose and this may be not for you but anyone who's a little bit sort of at, attuned to um, a bit more highbrow stuff should see should see this is great like come on like you know this should, this should be like a you know like a little sort of litmus test for like how how good are you at films like do you like this no go away <laughs> do some more watching <laughs> that's kind of how i see it so like molten can you know as i said go and do one <laughs> so, yeah just I, on I think the, if um, like god sarah sorry, sorry okay. I, I think if like the if the ending of this had been like he's this absolute saint and he gets this like redemption or whatever and the movie is a huge success and the musical is a huge success then i could i could see that criticism as more valid but like you're right randy like he is like the worst character in this like we still Mm -hmm. we kind of still like him in a way and and because he's i mean richard's performance is so charismatic but it's he doesn't come out of this looking good at all like everyone else does it's i yeah if someone is making a film to kind of like feed their own ego and be like look at how great i am this isn't how they would end <laughs> their film it's almost uh, look how sorry i am i suppose like you know like you wouldn't accuse right, bergman yeah. for of, of being you know like apologetic over like the errors of his ways or you know, uh, how he mistreated his wives and whatever like you wouldn't do that so i don't know just to add on this um dialogue about the, the the critic i think it's interesting because on a, on a personal note watching two two of his most famed films previously for the uh, for this and also talking about this film i think that as a critic these are actually quite difficult to deconstruct in a way that to, to give constructive criticism back to him because i think they're executed almost to perfection i think everything that he wanted and was able to achieve he did with cabaret 
the same with Lena within within the context of the time, especially here. I think that to attack this film for being egotistical is actually sort of a, a low blow, and I don't think it's quite correct. I mean, like you, you, everyone said here, um, adding in this sort of um, perspective of, of of the artist is the whole point of the job to begin with, or it's going to just be a, um, a a cashier hire. What what's the point? There has to be a perspective of ego in this, and also as as, as Sarah and what you also said, Randa, this is not perhaps perhaps giving him the limelight in a, in an order of saying. You know, I, I I did quite the job. No, th- this is a documentation of a, of a man who put too much effort into his work and not much effort into himself and to the pe- people surrounding him. I mean, th- this is this is not a, a love letter to himself. It, it's it's a it's it's almost a condemnation and a warning for the people around him to understand that he sacrificed everything to get to a point and to question if it if it was worth it or not. But I do think, from the the perspective of the um the critic, to analyze these films and, and, and i said i said this in lenny and this he, he also had to come out and defend it saying that well people ask me to then make a film that that i, I you know get, no, don't make lenny you should go back and make a musical so i made a, a film about essentially uh, about my life and then they attacked him for it and what do i do and i think he's right in saying that i think it's the, the ultimate ultimatum of these critics sort of analyzing these features and not being able to sort of <laughs> Not, not, not wanting to take it apart, but being able to. I don't think within his film work, especially what I've seen, you, you, there's very little in the edit within within the composition with how things are framed, but with how things are constructed that you can analyze it and give him sort of a negative impact for it. I think he's far ahead of its time, and to go for the the ego, especially within, I mean, within context as well. Again, I've all I've, I've once mentioned Coppola beforehand, but Francis Ford Coppola took more reels of film to shoot Apocalypse Now than Peter Jackson did with three Lord of the Rings films. He went he went over to Vietnam. He lost the use of his legs. He wanted to try kill himself twice. The, the lead actor had a, had a heart attack and he never pulled production. That's ego. Bob Fosse made a film about himself in order to sort of reconcile with the issues with his own conscience. I mean, it's interesting that they, they go for Bob Fosse like that, but... but I think it tends to be that Bob Fosse goes for a film that isn't sort of the um, masculine the masculine identification in the 1970s as well. I think he's deconstructing himself as well as deconstructing the masculine character because there's also comments within this film making like that you, he has feminine qualities, you know. I think, it's, I think it's interesting to sort of take that on board as well. I think this comes from an also a secondary place of, well, Bob Fosse's making these characters that, that are not these quintessential... American idealisms that I mean two two day, two years so two days two years three years later we get into the nineteen eighties where encapsulate tries to encapsulate that nineteen eighties um, uh, the type of American character that's that's a, you know it, it, you can't really deconstruct it it's something that you know has had something bad done to him he goes back he does something. To, to revenge himself or avenge something else. The, these are the, the, Bob Fosse's films are very different to that. They have a different texture. So the, the, for me, I, I find that the, the, the critics analysing these films, particularly at the time, are looking for ways to, again, not to annihilate him, but, but to take him down a peg in a way, which I find wildly strange, considering that he's not only a commercial darling, he's a critical darling. He's also a Academy Award-nominated... Um, creator, it just—it's like bizarre that they, they felt the need to analyze his films, but also this in a way that 
really has no point in having that conversation. The film does it. I just find that very strange. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't I wonder. Know. Sorry, sorry, go on. No, I, I half wonder if he saw the criticism coming and that's why you have this scene with a ridiculous female critic and her ridiculous four <laughs> balloon scale, four balloon scale. Half I give balloon. this half a balloon. I tried to dig out and I didn't find whether he he had he had a feud with Paul and Kale because I, in the 70s like everyone had a feud Kale <laughs> wondered the same thing but it makes sense right just in the like Jacob and I have talked about Cassavetes all year and and this was just he was a character that the critics just he's different we don't like him and I just wonder maybe if Fosse was sort of the same and that was just the world of criticism at the time and I and I I suspect strongly that maybe Fosse expected this criticism coming and that's why we get this scene because that critic is not super articulate. She's just sort of complaining and she has no charisma. And she's, she's reading off the page. Oh. And she's got a stupid little gimmick and he's, I think he's undermining the voice of the critics in that scene and I think it's sort of clever. I have to say that It's actually quite surprising that from 1979, I don't think film criticism has really evolved from certain elements of that construction of how to criticise a film with a balloon or make it whimsical when we're talking about some very highbrow thematic tones and ideals. I can't help but that's undoubtedly conscious. I mean, I think he purposely must have put a, um, a certain person into that to then have, not necessarily attack, but have a, not even a confrontation, but definitely have a, have a swipe at it. But yeah, it would... It, it feels like a, a very coincidental approach if that wasn't meant to be Pauline Kael, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pauline Kael, we've, we've heard about this chat before, but Pauline Kael had some very strange um, objections and then adm- admirations within cinema, which he adored, Brian De Palma, which, <laughs> which I, yeah. I just think, what? You know, I don't I don't sort of get that connection. But here, I agree with you, Randy. I think because Bob Fosse is doing something different, and I think his approach was to be the music, the, the musical director choreographer to stay in that that um to be relegated to that path and he and he he, with lenny literally went at the antithesis of that uh constructed something completely different which has has, has lived a long tail with its subject matter especially then with this to do something dramatically different and make himself to be a villain also but by also having a protagonist and antagonists are the same thing in deconstructing that and working on multiple levels. I think because it is different, it is frowned upon. It again, again, we're talking about the 1970s, which is like having difficulty with othering people. Rolling Thunder is one where the, uh, Paul Schrader having issues getting stuff on screen, trying to combat what the otherness was. And I think that this one is is an interesting conversation because it doesn't other something that has a different uh, race or is a different gender. To, to what is the construct of what modern of this type of 1970s Hollywood is, but because it wants to deconstruct the the person within itself who happens to direct the film to be based off that, I think that is the, an ideal that people are not sort of, well, I don't want to sort of confront in a way, you know, it, it, taking a responsibility, accountability from oneself is a difficult thing as well. So perhaps people reject the ideal. I don't know, that, that is getting to like a 1970s cultural thing, but I, I, I get the sense that that's sort of the approach. This isn't Rocket. It's not about a man going from the rags to riches, is it? It's about a man who essentially has it all, burning it away to realise the success of his aspirations as a career man. Very interesting, but, you know, deconstructed to a point. 
in a way he kind of epitomizes the uh, the 1970s sort of um like the work ethic of these mm-hmm. sort of like like you could imagine that Scorsese would have been in the, just the same mode of action as in like coke women and making movies one after another like that's Franz raging Bender balls in Germany like mm-hmm. he 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 yeah he he was kind of just operating on the, on the same level as in like I don't sleep I need to work 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 do stuff right like they they are these high achievers who discovered cocaine you know there's there's just and and it goes i mean i suppose on on one hand i mean we're we're we've come to kind of glorify that kind of behavior because look how much this man's achieved right like this is this is something that usually you wouldn't see what you're seeing in this film you wouldn't necessarily see you'd see the body of work you'd see like wow this guy like scorsese has directed 26 films in this much time you know and he did this and that and the other and if and and if you look at there's like when when you when you see like these sort of hyper achieving specifically men there's usually a broken family somewhere behind it and then and then you 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 gotta have to say at least at least at least he's kind of like fessing up in here and he's he's squaring up and facing up against the sort of the demons of us that he's actively realizing like wow i i have actually hurt all these people specifically all these all these women who um who are like near and dear to my heart, and then who have always been there by my side, and I've uh, I've I've caused them nothing but trouble, you know. So, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but then I, again, I, I it, must yeah. admit, Jacob, I have a strong feeling that because he's also feminine, I just it keeps on coming back that to me. I do think that this because there's an identity of, and he, again, we've mentioned that he, he purposely mentions the, uh, the 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 Lenny issues that he has. He purposely mentions within this the context of the film the critique uh, and the and the critic. Um, I can't help but say that the reason why someone makes a comment within the film itself about him being having feminine qualities, um, that that's undoubtedly got to be a conscious thing that he's written in there. And I do think that those contributing factors of of a social culture outside of the film, if it's if it's constructive criticism or it's the academic point of view, is not perhaps being able to have the discussion that it should be because it has a feminine quality. I just, I just it keeps moving back there. I'm just trying to think of other other films within the realm that 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 maybe perhaps are quite serious and don't take the camp route, which are yet still feminine in in a way. Whereas I think all of maybe not even not Lenny. I think Lenny's a very different beast, but Cabaret is quite camp and feminine to a point. But I, I do definitely think that this is so. Oh, someone's texting him. It's really fucking annoying. I do apologize. Um, oh Jesus. Yeah. Um, okay? Yeah, yeah. You just won't stop, and I, I couldn't tell if it was coming on the 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 podcast. Let me just put it on. Um, just do not disturb. Apologies. Um, just back to this this semi semi rant, but I do find that it is sort of a of unfounded critique about its feminism feminized part of this film. I don't know why I keep on coming back to that, but like I said, I'm trying to think of films that surround it, but it's all this sort of a masculized vision of 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 the male figure. If that's not something that goes from into sort of terror mode where you look, you look at, um, you know, heart of darkness with Martin Sheen and you, you know, but we've got the, the other end of it where you get the Rocky sort of stuff. It's interesting times in the 1970s. I just think it's not quite there to have the discussion about a man that was incredibly comfortable with his sexuality, who was openly feminine in a way in how he dressed in, in what, what would we presume as a cultural, um, um, outside norm of a man being a choreographer as well, which we would presume to be to be a female oriented. Why, why would be why would it be feminine? By the way, just I don't want to derail this conversation, but for me, like you know, like someone who's really comfortable with his masculine, like 
Like I'm, I feel like I'm comfortable comfortable with me being a man. No problem wearing pink. Like mm-hmm. you know, because <laughs> I, I like, think it's different I'm, in the 1970s though. It, and and actually, so you guys did a great job to sort of steering this. This was one of, one of my next talking points is sort of the masculinity and, and, and gender politics and and what have you. But I'll, I'll say this. Fosse spent whatever it was twenty years on the stage around dancers. Some people speculated that he, well, he might grew have been up bisexual. in a burlesque club, right? He grew up in a burlesque club. He started working in a burlesque club <clears> at at uh, age thirteen or something, or even younger. Um, and Probably made an impact. <laughs> he, he may have been sexually abused. It's suggested in here he may have been sexually abused as a young young man in the burlesque mm. club too, as mm. part of his history. So um, there's a relationship with the the feminine se- the the feminine gender the, the like his whole life and anyway also there's sort of the the cliche that Broadway dancers male are gay and he spent like yeah. twenty years in this environment too um, and it would be less less cool socially for the dudes to be okay with that so I, I think yeah I mean. What- I'm 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 not trying to utilize the ideal of of being a feminine quality to be a negative. I, I think it's quite an empowering thing. I think if if you if you're comfortable with your sexuality and, and you have feminine or masculine qualities, do you? It's not a problem at all. But again, like Randy said, within the context of the 1970s, I think that if you take Bob Fawcett or just just um, Gideon in itself, we try to they're the same thing. But let's look at Gideon, the actual character. There are undoubtedly feminine qualities there. I think. I think he's a, he's a person who, who who looks after his his image. I think he works in an in a in an array of uh, of a female led. Um, again, again, this would be a um, a stereotypical um, ideology of it, but but a, a, a female oriented background working as a choreographer. I think that he's teaching his daughter to dance. These are what what we presume to be feminine quality qualities, but ultimately. Bob Fosse deconstructs them to be not really have any gender norms to it. It's just a father with his daughter. It is a man working to attempt to get to his dream of being in in this sort of workplace that he adores. That's the sort of idea I get from Bob Fosse. I don't think he's bringing these gender norms to 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 the to the tables in that this is a conscious decision. But I think the audiences will look at that and and not again not necessarily reject it. But I don't think. The 1970s is a, is a is a comfortable nature. You know, you, you go two or three years again in the future, and you have the Reagan era, and we get into a whole host of shits within within um, his viewpoint of certain minorities within the the US. Again, here you have the sensual nature of, of the, the the dance, where we have this 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 incredibly on the nose sound of, sound of music esque. Um, performance and then it completely deconstructs to sensuality sexuality and skin black white um female male it it, it, it's 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 a it's a cauldron of it all coming together but it doesn't make any sort of um documentation or or idolize any of those things to be like oh look we're having um a black man and a white man caress or we're having a black woman and a white woman caress it just puts it on screen and I think that that really defines Bob Fosse as a as a, uh, as a creator, but also as a person. I don't think he he was someone who, um, I don't think he's someone who consciously wanted to, to discuss those conversations or those arrangements of, of of his productions or his life, because to him they were the norm. 
again, mm-hmm. I think the, the film encapsulates his idea of, of femininity in a sense of and sexuality and sensuality in the sense that he is a man uh, who, who, from a young boy, worked in a burlesque clubs. He understood women. He loved women. And he knew how to sort of manipulate women in a sense that to get what he wanted. Um, but I don't think that's a feminine quality because he understands uh, the opposite gender to himself. But I do think looking at the looking at the 1970s in in a, in a whole I, th- I do think people sort of reject that uh, that op- that operational skill of a man l- loving affectionately loving women as they've just weren't just you know torn out put, thrown here thrown there giving one thing another very much like the depiction of what lenny was like with his uh, with the opposite sex in those films using and abusing to get what he wanted here it's a it's very different approach similar but i feel like there's a different um, a different ideology behind there, where this, this this is a man who's who 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 doesn't want to be. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think he's to get into the gender parts of it, but he has so much affection for his daughter. He has so much affection for his ex-wife. They have like a really strong relationship, but everything is sort of put here that there's no hatred whatsoever. It's a very interesting documentation of how he uses women on screen here in, in anywhere. The angel being. I, I, um, um, I can't remember her name now. And Jessica Lange. Yeah, Jessica Lange. Like there's there's a wonderful warmth and sensuality where Bob Fosse puts women on screen in this film, but also with men. So it's interesting you talk about the bisexuality aspect of it, Randy. I I don't know much about Bob Fosse, so I try not to com- comment on that in, in a whole. But I just think that Bob Fosse comes from a background where gender wasn't a key part of his workspace it was that if you were good enough like he says to victoria if you're good enough to i don't, I don't know if you're a good dancer i don't you know, i don't you're, you're great but i don't even know if you're good but if you keep on coming here every day and we work on it i'll make you better than you are i think that was his approach so it's interesting to sort of look at that and, and maybe you could say that he's perhaps cold but i don't i think he's a he, he puts forward a very warm warm idea of of, of gender on screen, it, and not, not. I know that I've rambled for like fifteen minutes. I do apologize, but um, I'm, I'm welcome gonna put, to. I'm gonna put a, like a clip on the board, where just like if you ramble for like more than five minutes, I'll just put like a background music. On the- <laughs> yeah, like at the Oscars. Yeah, move on. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it happens. It happens a lot, Sarah. I do apologize. Just, just move. Just, just hey. like buttons. But I, that's that's the approach I get. I get approach that's it's a very sensual, sexually. Um, emotive type of feature that doesn't particularly hold its hold itself back within the the, the gender norms or the, um, <laughs> I've moved on now go on you can, you can, you can interrupt <laughs> anyone else with comments about the <laughs> gender relationships in here or representations Sarah I think yeah it's interestingly brought up the the sort of the the dance routine that sort of sits like roughly in the middle of this film um where it's like grimy and dirty but also like really beautiful to look at all of these bodies like just the the kind of the blurring of the lines to a point where you're not really sure if that's like a man's body or a woman's body or whatever and it doesn't matter it's just the things like coming together i think is like a really good way of like summing up like what this what this film is trying to do and what it's trying to say about Gideon's character as well, because he, I think the, that maybe like the quote, like feminine qualities are because he is like surrounded by like feminine energy. He has like a lot of, a lot of lovers, a lot of women in his life. He's got a daughter, you know, still 
quite a good relationship like with his ex-wife who's got his girlfriend but obviously you know just loves women (laughs) generally um and that kind of like womanizing character in a lot of other contexts not necessarily here is sort of seen as this like yeah like what a guy he can get like any Mm -hmm. woman he any woman he chooses or whatever and that's so not the case here which i think is interesting like he's not put up on this like pedestal of like look at this absolute you know peak of masculinity the because he can get all of these women he's not seen as that at all and it's like that blurring of lines that i was talking about in in that dance routine i think is what we get with this character as well which is an interesting thing to to think about and i think something that the film does really well as well I, I agree there, Sarah, as well. And just to add to that, I think it also highlights his addictive personality where he, he's not someone who, um, without sounding childish, he's not like a rascal where, like like you said, there's not a projection of him going through uh, women woman after woman after woman to be like a, a like a thing where the crowd's like, yes, yes. It, it's it, it, I think it, people will misconstrue it as such because it does give that, uh, that, that projection. But really, I think it's him having an addictive personality like he did with his work, like he did with, um, with drugs, like he did with multiple other things in his life and found it, found it too affection in these things that he, that he idolized and, and cared for, but didn't know how to handle it. And I think him dealing with, with, with drugs is one thing, him dealing with drink is another in that he, 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 he liked them. He used them. He, he was enamored by them, but didn't know his limits, didn't know how to control them and perhaps didn't know how to, who to, uh, make them more beneficial for him to have a relationship um, with multiple different people and communicate that he just stopped, went on to the next person then came back. And his, his, um, his dynamic was, I, I don't, I don't think it's Victoria forget her name towards the end when she admits to uh, someone's been at the house and he, he has this, this Katie. Yeah. With Katie like has this Anna moral, Ranking. yeah, mm-hmm. he has this moral conversation with her and he's like, please don't leave. I think he comes to terms of that, and I think it's showcased throughout the film of him just not being able to, perhaps, being in in, in the moment of, of of not having this idea of morality is that you're you're young for the for, you know for the rest of your life, which is which is obviously not the case, and just took advantage of everything while he could, and the hours and the days caught up with him, um, and and he's and he was on borrowed time. I think that's the the projection he's trying to put across here. But I but I agree with you. I, th- I think it's most definitely not the type of film that's that's making him this sexual sex symbol or this this ideology of of male encapsulated masculinity or anything i don't think it's like that i think it's it's a man who had these everything at his fingertips if it was women if it was with drink and drugs and it was this this highlighted career i just didn't know how to not be entangled by it in a way and i think there's yeah yeah i think there's personality pieces in here too that i think that He's re he's really really desperate for attention and validation, mm-hmm. and I think uh, further to that, in addition to having an an addictive personality, I think that he's he's just one of these guys that uh, he's a workaholic and is just constantly pushing because that's all he knows because he's been working to support his family since his his thirteen because his dad was never there and he says his dad was a uh, you know, a, a, a jackass and a philanderer. So it's all he ever knows. I remember a, a child psychologist, she said to me once, well, um, you know what? Kids go through these phases and they, they get to a certain point and this is the window of opportunity that they learn something. Like 
So they learn to uh, imprint on a parent or they learn attachment. And then when the window closes, there's there's no going back to to capture that. And I think there's elements here that there's so many things that he didn't get probably as a child that he has no clue how to empathize. He has no clue how to parent, but we're, or, you know, or relate to other people. But what he, he does do, he has this gift and this interest in, in music and dance and song. Cause he was a big Fred Astaire guy. Um, you know, he idolized Fred Astaire and anyway, so when he becomes a, a Broadway director and then when he becomes a, a director of film, he's, he's really wanting to unpack his, his story as, as much as he can. And he's just never had an ability because he was never taught it to connect with these women in a meaningful way as a partner. So the, the Audrey character, his wife is his muse and, you know, she inspires him. And, and even in the erotica scene, she's, she saw it at the beginning when it was just sort of a fluffy uh, little ditty and uh, she's sort of laughing and smirking and he, she's exchanging glances with uh, Fa, uh, sorry, Fa, Gideon. She's ex- she's exchanging these glances like, oh gosh, this is not very interesting. It's not very good. Um, but then when she sees the finished product, she's like, you, you bastard, you did it again. Like, he just tur- he had this one thing that he could do really well. He could visualize dance numbers. He could innovate, and I think that people who worked with him over the years they just felt special to be in his presence because if you worked with him, you knew that he was going to make you feel good. Now, meanwhile, so that's what he, that's where all of his energy went because it's all he ever knew. He didn't know how to you know have a family and have. Uh, you know, serious relationships or be a partner. He just knew how to visualize dance and then film. So I think a lot of people looked up to him and appreciated being in his orbit. So it's not like, you know, he would just go to bars and pick people up. Like he would, he, he would go to castmates and probably hang out with them and they would love to, they would love that attention. I think he was just one of those spirited magical guys that you know people really gravitated toward maybe in part because he thought they could make their career but even if they worked with them they knew that they were part of a special project mm-hmm. i mean there's for, for me there's there, there's quite a lot quite a bit more as well in there because like when you think about the guy's past right like there's this sort of like the way like like your sort of relationship with your parents whatever this is gets eventually repurposed, like the circuitry gets repurposed to how you interact with, like romantically with people, right? So if, you know, like if, if you have a real morbid relationship with your father, then potentially this is, this you may inadvertently kind of just propel yourself to kind of just behave similarly towards your parents, par- partners. You may be neglectful if, you're, if your parents were neglectful. This, this, is, this is difficult to overcome, I suppose, without ther- therapy or just a serious consideration of what you're doing. And then the guy is also, as you can see in the, in the film, he portrays him. And so he's self-aware. And then this is something that people who are kind of like on the sort of like real top end of the high achieving spectrum, right? Like they have these sort of the concoction of traits that make them really, really successful. Um, like is, you know, like they, they do, like the guy feels like he's, he is better than everyone. Like there's this sort of sense of superiority about him anyway, that he is, he, like, you know, you know, he's extremely confident. He's almost arrogant. 
right? <clears throat> At the same time, he has this sort of crippling sense of insecurity, as in like, what did the critics say? Where are the bad ones? You know, like he's he's really aware of the, like what's driving him is the is the sort of you know like f- the fact that he knows he's better than everyone else and the fact that he's never good enough, right? And also at the same time they have this um, like these these people like like I've known people like this who have this immense sense of focus and drive that they can do literally nothing else but one this one thing that they they obsess over at the cost of everything else. And then to me like he's aware of this. Maybe hope, may, maybe not entirely, but I don't know. Like, think about it. The guy, like, he he functions like a neurosurgeon. Like, who, like, if you if you ever interact with a doctor, like, do you know who, uh, who doctors hang out with? Other doctors. They don't have anything else but this, right? They don't have time for relationships, so they form relationships at work. And then you can pull it a step further. The guy is surrounded by women who also dance. And his daughter also dances. And you ask yourself, why? Why why is she dancing? Because she like she feels like she has to enter the her father's world so that she could be noticed. Because he, otherwise he probably wouldn't have time for her. And then you feel to yourself, like, this is actually you know, a bit of a tragedy, right? Like it's actually it's actually a crippling tragedy when you think about this, right? And <clears throat> I don't know, this this for for me to be this self-aware and this almost apologetic about this. It's something like I feel like Fosse is doing something profound in this film in in, in here this in, in in this regard like he's like the, the the last thirty minutes of this film is essentially him in in the only way he know he knows how to lay his heart on the table and then just and, and then just profoundly say he's sorry for what he's done and but he's just he's still unable to do anything but that's kind of the tragedy of his life that he still can't help himself this is a compulsion for him he has to work 120 hour weeks because he still doesn't know how to take care of himself (laughs) self-care he doesn't you know he he doesn't have maybe access to you know therapy or tools to help he just he doesn't know any other way so he's going to go out boozing and whoring and whatever but he does acknowledge and articulate this regret this is like a different energy these people have like like he's for me like the uh, the equivalent of him like later on would be prince like oh, a guy who just did like album after album he played 20 instruments himself he also banged like two and a half thousand women i want to say like and he wore high heels <laughs> and he was distal <laughs> so, it's interesting so he wore the high heels i mean right? it's interesting we get towards that climax because not to get there quite quickly because there's one thing i want to mention before but it has like a manager-toi of meta approach to that. You have Joe Gideon in, in the hospital bed dying within his last sort of breath, climactic breath is reinterpreting, reinterpreting his life in a, in, a, in a musical sequence with Bob Fosse, the director, playing Joe Gideon, then self-criticizing himself in the hospital bed, then Bob Fosse, the director, making the film it, it's, it's a really interesting and impactful way to sort of deconstruct one's life. Um, but just to go into that, you said earlier about not being able to switch off and his daughter has to come into it, his, his world, his viewpoint, come into his fairy tale. The one scene that I think encapsulates this, and I mentioned it before, is the sequence where he's teaching her or giving her a dance lesson in front of those, those, those mirrors. And I think that, that sequence itself, very much like the climax, is working on more than one level. We have the level itself where we have a warmth to, to Roy Scheider, who does a, I think he's so wonderful working with children in films. He's he, How he does it in Jaws is like, again, it's a Spielberg effect, don't me wrong, but he adds his little brush of colour there and he, and he strokes and he's excellent in it, especially at the dinner table. 
He, uh, I'll say this, Jack, I don't mean to cut you off, but yo. this is one of uh, Scheider's first days of shooting and he was nervous as hell because he says to Fosse, you want me to act and dance in the same scene? <laughs> so, yeah, no, carry uh, but, on. But you would never know that on the final product. That exactly. looks like day 90. And mm-hmm. and he, he has this one where he's picking her up and he's like, run to me. And, he, and she's running and he picks her up. <laughs> He always makes eye contact with her in any way you watch the sequence. If he's looking at the mirror, he's making eye, con- eye contact with her. He's looking at her when, when when he talks. So there's a lot going on there. And then you look at the context of the conversation. He's with his daughter. That doesn't get many much time with him because he doesn't get to see her one day. He doesn't, doesn't pick her up from school the next. And what does he talk about? What does What's mommy saying? What, what's mommy saying? Oh, I want a little brother. He never, ever wants to meet her at her level and ask about how she's dealing with things, how, how she's expressing her viewpoint within his life. When, when is she going to have a little brother? Because we, when me and mom think you need to marry someone else or when you fall for someone else, etc. It's interesting how, you know, how it's constructed in the sense that you would have thought it'd be this whimsical nature of him meeting Aitai with his daughter, metaphorically, not, not literally, but be on his knees or anything like that, like uh, dancing like that weirdly. But um, it's sort of like this, this deconstruction of, we're having this really wonderful moment, but really it's all about what Joe Gideon is getting out of it. It's a very pivotal scene, I find, in the film. It's one where it's just a pause. It's like the needle drop. We, we have all this extravagant nature to it, and then we have this very intimate sequence where it's a reflection upon them both, which is undoubtedly conscious. Um, again, like his, his, his composition, his blocking is, is extraordinary in his films. It's almost flawless. His editing, and they're just going back and forth. Like, like 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 something swinging and then the momentum just t- slowly takes out, slowly takes out and then we, we go back to reality. Just for one minute, we're in a different world. But even then, now shut up, But it does, but it does sort of reinforce this idea that even in these very intimate moments, and again, it's also then replicated in when um, Kate and his daughter do the dance for him when he's almost like pissed up. He's yeah. he's like. It has to be revolving around dance, which then has to invite him to it. And we've all had this. We've all had a parent, or we've all all, all had like a like this this figure in our lives where, you know, you, you may be young and you want to talk about some things like the silly or stupid or something that feels like it's it's uh, it hasn't got any weight in the world. And the person you talk to is just so disinterested, perhaps because of issues at work or so on and so forth. And you have to hit them at their level for them to interact with you. And I, I find all these sequences with his daughter. Um, really well made and warmth but they have this really bitter taste to them where everything has to be reinforced to involve joe gideon otherwise he's not interested and it's sort of this thing where you watch it again surface level his daughter they're having these wonderful moments and then you watch it sort of with the undertone and it's it's actually really quite sad and it's very poignant but that's bob fossey working on on two three different constructive levels with with um with with how he's constructing a sequence, I the think way he a, wants validation. Yeah, but it's, the, that's also a direct validation from him. Yeah, but it's also a very rare um piece of being able to orchestrate to do that by a director. That takes some in very much uh, playing four D chess. There, there's very few directors who can do that. And I think Bob Foss is, is a director who can. Uh, granted, he's lived this world as well, so he has this this extra sort of ability to do so. But um, he has this wonderful way to orchestrate a sequence that's playing on two, three layers and, and layers of depth. 
when really you can just watch it and experience it. And again, that's what I said about Cabaret and that I have to watch Cabaret again to sort of just to see these, but you can tell that he's at his power here doing it. He's getting everything here because it's just so flawlessly done. Whereas I think Cabaret is a bit murky, but those sequences of his daughter are just brutal to watch. That's why I don't want to watch this again. I find it, I find it quite heartbreaking throughout this film. Genuinely. And I don't get, I don't get like this, Sarah. I don't really care about stuff like this. I'll get straight billions into it. And billions <laughs> and billions and billions and billions I'll, I'll, and I'm billions quite, um, and billions. I'm quite desensitized to stuff like this, but I, I, it, 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 his, how he orchestrates those sequences with his daughter. And don't get me wrong, I, I often find that these are very cheap sequences in films because they're, they're the most easily emotionally manipulative uh, sequences to do to get the audience on one side or the other. Um, but here, I, I, he doesn't sort of um, weaponize them at all. He just shows them as they are, and and, and, and the sort of two D depth he's got it. And each and every time I think about it, just like heartbreaking watching his daughter at the end, which is like, please don't die, daddy, please don't die. But yet it has to be executed for him to get it in a musical number. Like that's fast. Part of my French, but that's fucking like damning. That is that, that I find that heartbreaking when when I watch that. Like him having to control that as well as as a person, that must be mind mind numbing to do. Must be a mind fuck. Pardon my French. Absolutely. So yeah, Joe Gideon, the Family Man. Any other comments? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for for me, the big comment would be, I suppose, to kind of just well, one thing is the character, the other thing is the director, and also there's Roy Scheider in it. For me, which which is to me the the big piece. To, into this sort of triangle of look I'm so happy I mean look it, I know maybe this is like the Jaws connection like Richard Dreyfus probably like he knew what he was getting like he probably read the script it's like oh nice to work with Fosse he reads the script it's like, guys I can't, I can't do this so, you know <laughs> he almost kind of feel like you know, like not everyone's kind of born to do this. Like, I honestly cannot imagine John Voight in this. Oh, dear or me, like, no. Or like anyone else who's kind <laughs> of like auditioned for this or they or who they offered this to. I mean, maybe this is just the byproduct of the fact that th- this is the only Joe Gideon I know because there's that's the only one we have. Did Roy you, um, and, Jacob, did but you, then did holy you shit, like about, this guy is just amazing. Did you read in, about in, the Warren Beatty thing? What, what is, I don't know if it's Warren Beatty, Warren Beatty, but he, he was signed on to it. With the only stipulation that Jogan couldn't die at the end, <laughs> and then you were like, "No, I yeah." I mean, that's why yeah. Columbia liked him. It'd be yeah. cheaper. They wouldn't have to film that last bit. In, in defense of Warren Beatty, I suppose, like he's he's he like in the seventies, he was kind of like a you know like a bit of a big wig, right? So. He could just go and commandeer. He's just like, I want to go into this film about Frankenstein, but Frankenstein is going to be a good guy or something like this. And then people will listen, you know? So I don't know. But yeah, like I, I honestly cannot imagine anybody else in this role because like this sort of the gaunt physique, the sort of the, the devastated body and also this wired mind all come through and they just add up to this character of well, Joe Gideon slash Bob Fosse in, in, like, in his self sort of mirror reflection commentary, right? When he's obsessed, exasperated, exhausted, like, you know, like, the, it's showtime, folks. You can see how it progresses into almost, ex- like, complete exhaustion. To me, this is, like, he's, and 
yeah, he's almost inextricable part of this. And then without Roy Scheider, th- this whole conversation would have been completely different. Maybe R- Moulton would have been correct, I suppose. But he's not. <laughs> but yeah, that, and that's kind of what I wanted to kind of throw into the sort of the bubble. I just, want, I just want to add really quickly. I know you're going to take the piss here like, quickly, but I, I find this, he has a very similar performance here to has in Sorcerer, where there's a lot that's said. Less not dancing, sp- suppose. Not, 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 not between Sorcerer. <laughs> But there's yeah. like he 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 speaks through a physical emo, um, he's like emotive through a physical stance, the eyes, the face. He has a face. I know everyone takes a takes a piss out of it because he has a very strange looking face. But he he has a face that that has been worn in a in a strange way. It's been it's been worn through. He's lived a life. I always I always encapsulate Roy Roy Shadow. And again, it goes back to the Jaws connection you mentioned. But I always have this father figure notion to him that he, he like he'd look after people. And I think here, I think you're right. I think he would have had to have done Jaws to get this role in a weird way. I think Richard Dreyfuss is like a Dreyfus is like one of the most cold actors going. That's a reason why I don't really like. Well, I know the Jaws connection, but he's quite good. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a douche in in like American Graffiti. Like he's and he's kind of like this sort of nerdy sort of. He's too plump for this role. Like he looks like Richard Dreyfus. Like I'm sorry to him, but he looks like he's a little bit soft. Like you know, if you touch him, he's you know, he's like made of like Play-Doh. Like I don't know. Like I don't know how jo- to explain what, what, what's, this. What's what's the John Voight one there then? If if if, if Richard Dreyfus is Play-Doh, what's John Voight to you? Oh, John Voight is like beef jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why, but John Voight kind of looks like he's like he probably smells like pastrami, or I don't know. <laughs> so what? Just, I don't know. Like yeah, like. Meanwhile, and this guy in here is he? Yeah, maybe maybe Roy Scheider in here is trying to be Beef Jack, but he's kind of like like built on. So he's like he's there's some flexibility to him, so there's less chewy. But he's, <laughs> I, I don't know. It, just got, it goes anyway. back to what Sarah said in the beginning. I think this is it no is, idea what I'm saying. I'm gonna it come. Is, it is his best performance, but it's because it's so raw. It's just so mm-hmm. inviting, so mm-hmm. much of warmth. Mm-hmm. I don't think I could see anyone playing this role in the 1970s. Like you have a look at Martin Sheen. Uh, what uh, uh, Pacino, De Niro, like you have the heavyweights. Um, mm. I, I think that that have you also not to go into Roy Scheider Brigade. I will be joining the fan club, sir. I'm a fan, but he, he's just this actor <laughs> like who very much never really got his flowers in a sense that he was the Jaws guy. But there was there's so much more to his his career as as a path as well. He has a wonderful warmth to him. He, he has this beading nature of these eyes where like he looks into through a soul. I think it takes someone to actually be quite vulnerable to take this role on. And I think that's perhaps a reason why multiple male figures within the 1970s looked at this and thought this will be excellent. Then read the screenplay and was like, um, you know, I, you know, I can't sing and dance. And he's like, well, we'll go then. And I think Richard Rivers is one who was not able to show his vulnerability. I think Warren Beatty not wanting to die at the end is a classic example, example of that. I think John Voight would have been interesting, again, miscast. I think here he... I think he meets Bob Fosse hand in hand. I think that's why he has so much respect for him in the fact that I know that you need me to go to the end and show my vulnerability. And because it's written by you and it's by you, I'll, I'll take that path. And and I think there's this mutual, wonderful respect here. And um, again, I, I think that Rob, Rob, uh, Roy Schneider goes for this as well. Almost it t- Rob Schneider. Yeah, again. I did. I also I, I almost did as well. <laughs> it's, been an, it's been almost two hours. And I, I fucking knew I would drop that in. Um, yeah, it's um, Amer- American Gigolo or whatever it's called, European Bruce Gigolo, whatever it's called. Um, Catherine Bigolo, male Gigolo. To be fair, to, yeah, to be fair, Rob, Rob, Rob Schneider sort of needs 
our comments about him now to just have that bit of um, notoriety <laughs> if he's not going after like you know his right wing crowd. But yeah, I, I think that there's definitely what a, is a, happening. Uh, yeah, well, you, <laughs> you, you went you went down this road. If you'd have blanked it, I wouldn't have mentioned it. But just to get to the point, I think it takes a real vulnerability to get to the point and within the film, especially at the climax. I think what one sequence, and again, not to jump the gun here, is is that bathroom, bathroom, excuse me, the, the robe sequence where he's, he's sort of going around the hospital and the the the, uh, mm. the orderly talks to him and they're just having a conversation, and he's like he's gone and he's you can tell he's he's very unwell and just wants to get out of there and they just pick him up and take him away and I've never felt like I've never felt like warmth there like the vulnerability you get from those sequences just like haunting right. Just help the guy out, but he just he's, he's resting and wanting to 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 get that power back of, of five years ago, just to have the time. And again, reinforced by not to spend it with his daughter or his ex-wife or, or his multiple girlfriends, because he wants to finish the fucking um, you know, the, the the performance. He wants to finish it. So I don't think you can get this as good as it is without that that actor on board. I think it's a different beast in Tyler. Yeah. I mean, Warren I think Beatty frightens me, to be fair. I think Scheider's perfect, but I would love Sarah's comments on Scheider at this point. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Preach, preaching to the choir here. Like, yeah. I I was just having a look again, as I frequently do, at, like, Scheider's run in the 70s, unmatched. Like, how this guy was not, like, the biggest movie star in the world after his run of films in the 70s. He was included... The French Connection, The Seven Ups, Jaws, Marathon Man, Sorcerer, yeah, Jaws too, and then all that jazz. Like that, I, yeah, like how Jaws does too. one person? <laughs> how do, I like Jaws too, but anyway, yeah. How does one person do all of that? And there's such range in there as well. Like we we joke on Jaws for a minute that like we've created like the Roy Scheider cinematic universe where like French Connection is the prequel to Jaws, and then things go south and he ends up where he is in Sorcerer, um, but. <laughs> You're right. I, I, my mind was kind of blown, like hearing that Richard Dreyfus was like not just considered for this, but pretty much kind of like cast at, at one stage. Because I love being a Jules gal. I love Richard Dreyfus as well. And I think the one, the one thing that he would bring to this is that kind of like Dreyfus has got like a twitchy kind of like nervous energy, and I think that that could have worked. <laughs> In is some the, places, is it the cocaine? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Just like they cast yeah. it because yeah. you already knew what it's. <laughs> yeah, like, but like you know what I mean. Like he he plays that sort of character like really well, kind of like a bit of a neurotic mm-hmm. kind of character is is what he does really well. And there's there's elements of that that would work in that work in this, but then uh, there's a lot that wouldn't work. Like I don't. Roy Shadow's just got the perfect face the perfect everything for this role like you said it's it, it looks lived in <laughs> weathered like yeah. and like, be kind yeah 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 but i i i mean i love Roy Scheider, so, he like, looks you know. like he lived a life a very <laughs> short very, but intense yeah very very biased over here but like you see him change through the course of this film and i I did. I haven't done that much reading, sort of about like the making of it, of whether he was sort of like putting his body through anything like super punishing. If he did, it's not that well ported or that I could find. But you see a transformation in him, whether it's just in kind of like the 
the makeup or like there's one stage where like you see really close up of his eyes and like the bottom of his eyes are just like red i've never seen mm-hmm. someone's eyes like that red and it's it's scary and it's frightening to sort of see someone's body be pushed like to the absolute limit and 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 look like that at, by the end and it's just he he sells it so well and those kind of like repeated it's showtime folk scenes like you see you could you someone on the internet has probably done this but you could super cut all of those together and just like see like the decline over time and it's i think it's fascinating uh, that's where i got this from it's showtime if there's a super cut on youtube (laughs) of all of them And also, there's I don't I don't know if you know, but there's also one in Better Call Saul. It's showtime, folks. Yeah, I remember reading that. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I go back, I go back to the point of like that sequence with his daughter, and like watching Richard Dreyfuss or Dreyfuss like five foot three of him picking up his daughter and trying to dance. Like I just I don't I don't I don't <laughs> see it. But I also get the strong impression yeah. that having been said that Randy said wanting to cast himself as as Joe Gideon, I think Richard Dreyfuss is one that looks just a little bit like him more. With the receding hairline, and, and also it's interesting that this film's all about vulnerability. But Bob Fosse was like, "If this film is made, Joe Guinea has to have hair because he was so yes. self-conscious about being bald." Which I think is such yeah, an interesting yeah. thing about showing showcase how much of a shit dad you are, how much of a horrible person you can be, and how, how neglectful we are. But the one thing he did, he didn't want on screen, <laughs> he didn't want to be bald. Which, I, which no. I think, if that doesn't perfectly encapsulate the issue of a, a, a man's well. issues. Yeah, I can, like, I can well, understand in, this. In lack of confidence in different yes. ways. Yeah. It's not lack of confidence. It's it's the uh, cri- crippling vulnerability that propels people to act on stage. Like actors have this. Like Mel Gibson has this. Stallone's had this. All these people, like Mickey Mickey Rourke had this. All because Mickey Rourke is a different beast, Jacob. We're gonna get in. No, in, like he used, but he like think about like nine and a half weeks, like Mickey Rourke, that like he's like Hashtag no homo, a sexy man, okay? <laughs> yeah, I don't think you have to hashtag like, that. In a, <laughs> in a totally non-homoerotic way, he's a beautiful man. And then just, but then, but what the problem is, like someone like Fosse, there's footage of him when he's young, like that, dancing with like, you know, like Fred Astaire and shit like this. I don't know, other people, right? Like he's, you can you can see him dance, and he can he can see himself dance, and then he can look in the mirror, and and you can see the difference between like I used to be like this, and I'm like that, and then they see they 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 uh, like wear their sort of their self worth on the outside, like they they need the external validation from other people, and then they they can see that they're like when they when they go gray, like actors go absolute apeshit over like hair implants like remember bruce willis when he was like took him years to embrace the dome you know because oh. he was losing hair and well, john travolta yeah but this this is a real problem for like actors for performers in general you know because it's it it's seen like a sign of aging it means like okay well this is this is it then you know that's it's showtime folks but but differently right like so you can see like he can he, he like as an actor you can observe your decay as time goes on because it's documented on film so it's it's a it's a bit of a you know struggle for performers yeah. well, well i think you it can ties see to self low self-confidence <laughs> yeah. in some in some aspects also let, let, let's let's say what it really is right half of it is also him having the foresight of knowing that once this goes on to to celluloid and it gets out there it's his it's it's ultimately his last will and testament on the cinema screen he never did a film after this. Uh, well, he did, I think he did. Oh, he did. He, he did. Died seven and a half years later. Sorry, 
So you, c- you couldn't really envision other things. You didn't in start. You watched this. Yeah, no, no. I'm trying to deny. I'm, I'm trying to deny all that. Shut up. But um, I think he also knew the foresight. If this, if this was going to be such a personal th- film of him, I think he wanted to remember himself as well in a way, it, which is which is interesting considering the context of the film, the depiction of being very, very vulnerable, but then just wanting to have something of his own. Which which goes back to what Randy said about it's like a, a an apology note. It's a love letter to those who he afflicted with the, the, his issues of neglect by by in trying to encapsulate that and forgive himself, but also allowing him as a as a person to be to indulge in things that would have made him happy in a way. It's interesting. Again, layers. There's so much depth here. Hair, daughter stuff. Cool. Another element going back to Scheider, which must have been a unique situation for you know any actor to be in is he's modeling his he's modeling his character Roy Scheider, Scheider is modeling his character off a man who's standing right next to him every hour of every day of the shoot <laughs> so he's got a constant mirror almost and it's also Bob Fosse directing so he gets all these nuances. It's it's fascinating. I, I think there's more nuances in Is it fascinating? Sorry. Oh, fascinating. wow. Yeah. Fucking hell, honestly. No, no that's don't... good. No, it's not. Stop <laughs> it. Don't be fussy. I'm not. Don't be oh, fussy. wow. Do you know, I, I've got I get an hour and 47 minutes for me for to put Roy Schneider. It took you an hour and 50 to make a pun about Bob Fosser. I think we're doing quite well. This is only because you're here, Sarah. Oh, we, Otherwise, we it would have been like the first posse. 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> But I came up uh, with the falsy posse, so I have to live up to my. Have you told Sarah what you said about your exorcist thing? What did I say? The colon. Oh, the, the colon believer. Yeah. <laughs> this is the only title in the world where the where the word colon should be actually pronounced in the title. Yeah. The exorcist colon believer. Colon believer. Because it it also indicates where this film belongs. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, came that makes sense. Really pissed me off. But you know, I digress. By the way, on the Shider, I just wanted to quickly mm-hmm. add. Like, Jaws came out, the biggest movie of all time at the time, right? And still, like, what what's the biggest thing about the film? The shark. Like the guy doesn't like and and like he had this like he like he couldn't catch a break. Like he was never a star. He was never, you know. Like in the seventies you had your Dustin Hoffmans, you had your you had your Al Pacinos and De Niro's. He was never like among one of those. And in, and he was always like under the radar. He, I mean But his resume w- was I'm with Sarah. <clears throat> yeah. Well yeah, but then like he would then he would be just this close. Like imagine if Sorcerer had been su- a success, right? But it wasn't. Like mm-hmm. it, because like, you know, this little movie comes out called Star Wars and just ruins, you know, like Friedkin's day, you know, on top of everything. Like he, I suppose like Friedkin had this of, I don't know, thought it's like, I'm going to name this film Sorcerer, even though there's no magic in it, you know, <laughs> so that you like, wild bill, there we go. Like, I don't mind confusing the audiences, but then again, just like, what's this? Is there a truck in here? No magicians. I don't know. What's what's going on? Like, let's see this film about this. Like, there's this guy wearing a wearing a bear outfit, fi- you know, like firing crossbows. I don't know. Can I so- just just to add to here, and just is to add to your point, I swear to God, right? That Roy Roy, Schne- Roy Schneider had almost this- said Schneider again. Yeah, I almost did. <laughs> don't I don't I'm not looking at you when I'm speaking now because I, I mean I'm I'm sweating now. Oh, <laughs> but um, oh, to 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 relate it back to previous entities of that type of actor, and th- th- people might disagree with here, but but I'm going to be quite open and honest about this. 
The reason why Rob Schneider didn't get the credits. <laughs> Roy, 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 stop. Said, like, the reason why Roy Schneider. Roy, Roy, yeah, Roy Schneider uh, right, didn't get perhaps to the levels that the Pacinos and the De Niro's and the, the, the Warren Beatty's of the, 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 the time is because, and let's just call a spade what a spade is. Roy, Roy Scheider is not conventionally attractive to that model of what made the 70s and the 60s big. If you go back to the 30s and 40s, Roy Scheider is in the same contemporary volume within skill as the Cagneys and Edward G. Robinson, James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson. These two, we'll two men. Villains, were, like Scar ah, <laughs> I will be I will be heard, right? It wasn't in Scarface, it was in Little Caesar. You don't even know your history, okay? You come on here and try to try to upset me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well one person's got a soundboard. Anyway. Um I paid for it. Yeah, well no, no, fair enough. If you've got to bring me down, you you go through there. But these were two actors who had so much skill, but they they were built in a very different way in physical stance. Edward G. Robinson was is, is a very different type of actor to the likes of what came through with the Leclerc Gables and the Douglas Fairbanks before him, who were the quintessential leading men, six foot three, credibly slim. Roy, Roy Scheider is, is sort of, is the type of, of actor that James Cagney and Edward G. Robinson were in the type of that there's not a conventional attractiveness in there, so you can't put him in a film like, like Harrison Ford ultimately became. I think Harrison Ford and, and and him are very similar type of actors in that one is just looks a different way, is more conventionally attractive in a Hollywood stance. But I've always said this, like, the problem with that is that this is where the Hollywood changes in that it looks for people who are, you know, you get into the 80s, like the, the, the latter 80s and stuff like that. It changes its, its standards on what a performer was. It had to then be a sex symbol. And I think he, he was caught in, in a way that, Thankfully, he did, he did sort of come about in a decade or two later, in a sense that it was he was able to flourish because of his skill. I think that's very rare now. I think a, very, a Roy Scheider now is a very is a very rare circumstance within that it's a John C. Riley. It's John C. Riley is is able to do a character actor driven stuff, and he can occasionally be able to be in a rom com, but it had to has to be situated into that perspective of it because he's not a conventional. Um, he has he hasn't conventional attractiveness, which is quite unfortunate. But nevertheless, that's that's where we are today. Yeah. Is that he's not a Chris Hemsworth? In the seventies, I, I would say Roy Scheider was usually second fiddle. He was second fiddle to the Shark. He was second fiddle to Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Yeah, what was yeah, he called? He was what, what did Billy Freeman call second, him? Second banana. Something like that too. So I, I, somewhere along the line, I don't know. Maybe he got done dirty. This is his film where he's the yes. star, undeniable, and it, it's coming at the end of of the, you know at the end of a decade where his resume is impeccable, but he's always sort of uh, riding shotgun with with someone. Or but like 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 Cagney and Robinson, they waited the long game in that the short run. They were never going to be seen as these um, equal male stars of the time. And this this is the exact same for, for, for female stars as well. I'm just making the perspective of, of a male because it, we're talking about Roy Scheider. But they, they had to wait the long game for their careers to be taken into account rather than the person they were. And unfortunately, it's the same that's happened to Roy Scheider where because it's all said and done now, we can look at a collective and body of work and appreciate and, and truly appreciate him. Because at the time, being second fiddle in, in, in these, these, these features, unfortunately, it is, it's just that perspective of what's on the poster, you know? 
it, he's just he doesn't have that quality. But thankfully, to to like can academic and criticism, and also looking at looking at as also with the the fan club that Sarah runs unofficially, we're mm-hmm. able to look back on this now. And I think it's so important to do this because there's so many actors like Roy Scheider, right, who were generally brilliant, who never put in bad performances, who who were excellent, but just don't get the plaudits and the flowers because they weren't they weren't they weren't well conventionally attractive like. Um, maybe Marlon Brando was, or he maybe wasn't the Willem Dafoe of his time. Yeah, yeah, I, and, and we, nobody will truly appreciate Willem Dafoe until it's said and done, and we have a collective body of work where we can analyze it. And look. I, also, again, you look at um, uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Not not to bring up Freaking Game, big fan. We all are, but he he, he is like like quite stunning in that film. How he captures him, the few films before he's in as well, he encapsulates that that menace. But again, Rush Edit is, is someone who, because he looked like someone who could be a mailman and not someone who sold L'Oreal on, on the TV, he was considered a different type of beast. Uh, no, I'm not trying to put, don't really read into that at all, anyone, but it, it's true, you know. And I think Jaws is, is probably the one that was like, oh shit, like, like he, he doesn't upstage the shark because um, Richard Dreyfus is actually, Red Dreyfus is actually quite brilliant in that film as well, but and also Spielberg's direction. But it's a one film that then personifies him as an actor that he goes on to sort of elevate and the, the, the lineage of his, of his creative choices can always be traced back to that film. And I think it always goes back to that father and daughter relationship within this film. If he is not cast, that, 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 that doesn't work. And that dynamic is, is the heart and soul of this feature. Especially when you get to the end, if it doesn't have to go back to the point, which I've sadly forgotten, but um, there we go, yeah, yeah, it does rest on that on that. Um, go on, go on, there we go. It does rest on that that um, that story arc, and if he is not cast here, I think it's a detriment to the film, and it is astonishing that again, obviously they went head toe to toe at the the Academy Awards. What? Who won? Is it? Is it Hoffman for Kramer Kramer? Who won Best Actor in nineteen seventy nine? Hoffman for Kramer. Hoffman. Kramer. Right. Well, I think that's a that's a daylight that robbery. That's a big four win, right? Hoffman uh, Streep. Oh, might be. Yeah. Was it? Who directed that? Benton. Benton. I don't know if he won. I just I just hope that someone that. took him to like to a one uh, to a side and someone yeah, was like Benton. Look. Benton Kramer. Uh, Kramer best picture. Okay. Benton direction. Hoffman's. Okay. Uh, well, no, no, no actress, one. Actress Sally Field. It. Sorry, Sally Field got it. Yeah, no, no. Meryl Streep got the same. For, sorry, Meryl Streep got it, but in the supporting actress role because yeah. it's you know. But again, I I just hope that <clears> someone <throat> someone took him to one side and was like, people won't re- recognize this now, but when the time comes, I obviously no one probably said this. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I just hope that someone was like, you you've been outstanding here. And again, again, I'm I'm presuming that with his ego as being an actor, he would probably have realised he did a pretty good job. But I do hope that someone put him to one side and was like, "I think you've achieved something quite quite exceptional here." And they won't under the kids won't understand this now. But when they grow up, the people will get this. And talking about now, yeah, I I think he understood it was something special. Um, you know, I think Fosse in his own way, he understood it was something very personal. So yeah, I, I think that probably resonated with those involved. That's why so many people wanted to work with Fosse. I have to think is, you know, I, I work with this guy. He's going to make me look good. This guy does special stuff. People want to work for driven people. Like, I don't know if you've ever had like in, interactions with people who are like insanely driven. It's almost a pleasure to work for them or with them. Like you kind of just derive this weird energy, even th- even though they tend tend to be assholes sometimes because they don't appreciate failure. 
very well, right? But it's kind of just like you know, like you you want to be a part of a team when where where you have someone like you know like up front just going like yes, just like you know, like when you know that they don't sleep at night because they're all they do is this. It's almost like you know, it's titillating almost, just like you know, like I'm in a boss, Bob Fosse film. Like I'm, he, this guy hasn't had a nap in a week. You know, it's- I, I I agree, Yaku, but I also yeah. think it's the academic uh, academic excuse me the Academy Award recognition as well. I think the 1970s where that that type of foray into um, getting that golden statuette is is quite big. I always I mean, personify. Fosse was bigger on Broadway than he was in cinema as well. Yeah, but right? Cabaret, like was, Cabaret was, was massive. A bit, yeah. Cabaret was mass, and I think Lenny was something very interesting. I think as soon as this opened up, I have no doubt that people were like flocking to this. And it's quite interesting because like, like, the songs, yeah. where are the songs? It, this guy's spouting n words all the time. Yeah, but to, to be fair to like what Randy said earlier is that th- this is a film that like if you if you spot them, John Lithgow, well, excuse me, Sean Wallace, um, Jessica Lange, there's a, there's a few bloated cameos here. But he actually, again, this might just be a product of its time in, in this case, but he doesn't cast stars either, which I think is actually applauded of his creation. Well, I think that part of it is involving people that he that he knows, right? So, And who can do the job, to, yeah. You know, so, so many of the people here are from the world of Broadway. Uh, Leland Palmer, who plays Audrey, his his wife, and Ryan King, of course. Um, and, Leland you know, Palmer? All, Leland Palmer. <laughs> that's her name so the uh, the twin peaks dad was named after this character uh, but she's but she's a sta- you know she's a stage actress and uh so many of the supportings are but he knew that you know i, I can't i can't make this film with studio involvement unless there's a star in the lead role right so like inshider was the recognizable name and he well, had to fight for him but dreyfus was the recognizable name right because dreyfus had jaws and then close encounters and sort of like bam bam one two shot one one and two punch, by mr right? chips too right so he was getting yeah. on like he ended up winning the <laughs> meanwhile shider was like jaws marathon man not not sure if Mar- the marathon man was a success and then sorcerer so i think like, he kind of tanked a little bit so maybe his brand wasn't really too high so, yeah, but then again, for me, this, he's a, he's a magnificent actor in a magnificent movie, you know. So uh, agreed. That's um, what it is. Moving on, I just want <clears throat> to know your guys' uh, takes on how Fosse uses the narrative devices in here, which I would say maybe harken to his other films. He's he almost this Greek chorus type of uh, segment that he has using the Angel of Death. I think this gets into an interest of Fosse's, this sur- surrealism, symbolism, um, the medical showbiz, you know, blurring of those lines. Uh, what do you guys think of just the the way the film is structured and, you know, in, in specific, maybe even the, the angel of death scenes? Yeah, I, I really like that. And I, I liked and appreciated that more this time around watching it, I think. Um, just because it made a little bit more sense on a repeated watch. Cause I think the first time you're like, what is going, what is going on here guys? Um, but yeah, I, I like that it, it sort of has those moments with the, with the angel of death and it sort of like becomes clear, like clearer as the film goes on, like what is going on here. And this idea, I think you mentioned it earlier, Randy, that like he's, flirting with with death and it's one of the things that is in the um the kind of extended stand-up sequence as well from for the bit that he is meticulously (laughs) trying to edit where it sort of says about like anger denial bargaining depression acceptance as a sort of like 
I know him as kind of like state the stages of grief, but I think they called him something else. Oh, that's the uh, Kubler Ross something something. But yeah, the five stages that's because yeah. that's, that's the psychiatrist who came up with this one. This woman yeah. Kubler Ross or something. Yeah, and in this they without sort of the like, benefit of dying herself. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they Great use line. it in this as to sort of like those are the kind of stages you go through before death, which is interesting because it's usually that those are the sort of things that you go through mm-hmm. after death. It's like the the five stages of grief, isn't it? So I think like that after someone dies. Yeah. 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 Um, so having it as like not like after you die because yeah, this <laughs> 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 got morbid all of a sudden. Um, regrets. Yeah. yeah, and and like the. Those sequences with the with this angel of death are, are like surreal as well, and this sense that and it, they're shot differently. There's kind of like a weird light to them um, that sort of makes it look different to the to the mm. rest of the film. And I really love 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 the like last time we see the the angel of death, and he is just kind of like slowly like moving towards her and it's just like this acceptance and then Amazing. followed by like the cold hard reality of just this of body death. bag being zipped Amazing. up it's just like yeah. he has kind of you know <laughs> yeah. gone through this whole strange surreal wonderful incredible journey to sort of like make peace with everyone around him and himself and kind of like accept death and and welcome it as a as a friend almost and then it's just like that contrasting with the then what like the final shot of the film is is just like oh it's such a real it's a like a gut punch at the at the end of the film but yeah i i i love those bits i think it works really well in sort of blurring those lines between like reality and Mm -hmm. fantasy as well like yeah it's it's so amazing and it's it's uh there are these subtleties in there too so very close to the end where there's a moment where uh, Jessica Lang leans over and is going to kiss Roy Scheider and he sort of pushes her back and he says, no, or not, not yet, or not ready or something like that. And that's when he sort of pops back to life, <laughs> which in a way, when you think about it, it's like, no, no, like he, he, he does want to have one kick at the can to maybe, maybe one of the women of his life or his daughter is, is nearby. And that's where he sort of comes to and, he sort of gets out of the bed and he sort of wanders around and he goes through some of the stages, at least that it's probably more layered and I'm missing it, but like he's angry and he's bargaining and he's saying, come on, God, why can't you, you don't like musical comedy, you know? So like he's, he's actually sort of, God goes like, these- you made sweet charity die. <laughs> oh <my God>. <laughs> he's forgiven. Stop it. He's forgiven for that. No, he's not. <laughs> yes, he is. He's completely forgiven because he gave us this. But that's a really nice touch to me. <laughs> um, but that's a really nice, nice touch. And there's something just in reading up on this that the the character of Angelique or the Angel of Death that she's this warm, loving figure that and he is sort of modeled off his first wife, who he screwed over, you know, and cheated on. But she was really meaningful to him and helped him with his career and was you know very loving and so this character is for for Fosse, no one else in the world but is is evoking you know the the late miss mccacken i think her name was forget her first name joan maybe um that's really McCrack- sweet mccracken mccracken right? not mccacken <laughs> <laughs> but to me that's really sweet because you know even in death 
you know, he's ready for it. So the acceptance piece and there's someone waiting for him there, uh, you know, and that's even sort of sweet in its own way. So no, I think it's just fantastic. And I, I just, I, I just love, I just love the juxtaposition of, you know, these dreams and the medical condition. And, you know, just sometimes you'll get shots of Roy Scheider's hand in this dream world, uh, this, this dreamscape. And then when you go to the real world, he's like suffering like a mild angina and he's always rubbing his wrist. Like there's these parallels there. It's absolutely fantastic. And it's this also this bizarre land that gives Fosse the opportunity to have a little flashback or two, right. About when he was mm-hmm. a kid and, and whatnot. So it's, that's how he can get that information because Fosse is, I think, is processing a lot. And it's just, it's something that we get from, from Fosse. We saw it in Lenny. Like you, you have these, the, almost these chapter markers. And, and here we, we have three of them, really. We have the cut of the, the stand-up movie. We keep going to this footage. And then we have these sequences. And we also have, of course, his morning routine, you know, uh, you know, with the Dexedrine. And it's showtime, folks. And it, all of them, if you were just to watch the, the stand-up comedy bits, they progress unto themselves. The Angelique sequences, if you were watching them just sort of back to back to back to back, they progress uh, sort of telling a bit of the story. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's great. Like, I absolutely, absolutely love this element. There's one thing I wanted to specifically to kind of just um, j- just jump onto what Sarah was saying a minute ago as well. Because like, and well, kind of just to tie into bo- what both of you just said, but at the end of the day, in my mind, it's always, it's a kind of, kind of a tragedy because it's still always about work. And it's like a very little piece of nuance that it's blink and you miss it specifically as the movie ends. Because like you have this song, it's a musical number that takes 30 minutes or so. So it's a big opus. It's a big piece of music with these multiple mini songs in there. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he has this, like what Sarah is just saying, like this of, this what I call the Spike Lee dolly shot where he's on the platform being sort of dollied around where he's static and then the whole background's moving behind him and Jessica Lang's on the other end. So he's kind of going into this warm embrace of death, whatever. And then the music's still pumping and has this sort of beautiful pulse. And the music doesn't end like like a music musical would end with this big flare. Bah, bah, you know, it doesn't end on one. It just cuts in between two beats. Zip, we're done. As in like, he knew ahead of time. It's like, I'm going to die. And the biggest fear of his life would be probably to, to die and not have his work finished. That's kind of the sort of anxiety that he's just... This film ends before it's supposed to. That's kind of, for me, the cruel irony of this movie. And he kind of worked it in because this is not an accident. This is something that a musical director does on a, on purpose. And to me, this is fun, a fantastic piece of like directorial nuance that just smells of genius. Okay, that's kind of how I see it. But yeah. Yeah. And also insofar as that last bit in a way, maybe that's a love letter. Maybe that's an apology uh, this, this is another angle I love about this. And if you don't have the skills or you, you don't know how to make it right with your loved ones, you don't know how to say sorry, I suppose right, your, your act of care is to do what you do best for them. You know, so like it's this it's this musical number that it's yes, it's his swan song, but it's as much for it's as much for you know, the, his loved ones and the people in his family in, in a way too. And that, that to me gets me every time when he runs into the audience 
and he embraces the daughter and that hug, like it's just a full body bear hug. Mm-hmm. The legs are wrapped around him. And I, I bet you anything, Fosse got them to do that hug until it was just perfect because he, he nail, nails the authenticity of that hug. It's beautiful. And then while he's hugging her, he sort of, uh, strokes the cheek of, of Audrey, his wife. Mm-hmm. Lisa won't have to lie to you anymore. And this is sort of another piece that I think that this is very much an apology. And, you know, it's, he doesn't know how to behave correctly, but you know, he's trying to be sincere here just in this final swan song. And meanwhile, it's a kick-ass musical number. Like, and there's so much emotion going on. And MJ hates it. I don't get it. He's only had one <laughs> viewing. <laughs> we forgive yeah. you. Yeah. He's only had Jesus the one viewing. Christ. And we know that we know there's another viewing coming. So yeah, he'll be okay. We'll let him he'll off. be okay. <laughs> For now. For now he's excused. Yeah. I I I I, I semi see the point. Like I, there, there reaches a point. I think in that like last like thirty minutes or so, where you're kind of like, yeah, yeah right, we get it. Like you're dying, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I don't enjoy it. Like I, I still like it. And I think when you're, when you you look at it as, you know, Bob Fosse coming from from his background and everything would know and be very familiar with not just Broadway musicals but movie musicals as well and like what do they usually end on this kind of like sometimes quite surreal sometimes 20 minutes plus kind of like ballet sequence they they usually call them and like that's that's him doing that in this film as well so I feel like it's it's a choice that makes sense within the context of the film even if it does kind of like really push that push that point um, I still in I still enjoy it, and I don't I don't dis- I actually think that last thirty minutes is maybe my maybe my favorite bit of the film, just because there's so much like thematic texture it's- in there to really get your teeth into. But yeah, it's I I I see the it is making one point, but I think it makes mm-hmm. it very very well, and I enjoy yeah. watching it. <laughs> and. And uh, like what I call the bedside hallucination numbers, I think that's the, his life passing before his eyes, so to speak, is he sort of comes back from that and then he runs around the hospital a little bit, but he's, he's, this is his life passing before his eyes. And these little mini numbers, one is from his wife, one is from his girlfriend, one is from his daughter, and one is from sort of the chorus line, sort of the, the litany of women and uh, that, that he's not been nice to, or uh, he's used, we'll say. And, uh, it's, this is, this is what he feels he's going to be left with, you know, whenever the body bag is zipped up, right. This is his reality. So it's, I think it's just such a, it's such a very bold and personal and brave, uh, declarations. Like this is the type of CAD that I've been. So, you know, let's, (laughs) let's do a musical about it. Like, imagine bearing your own soul in that way and it's not a book where you're in the privacy of your own home and you're getting your demons out through your pen or through your uh computer you know this is a a big eight month shoot (laughs) you know getting people to you know live it out a certain way it's it's a really bold 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 um declaration of your story it's it's fascinating to me on a on a meta level Any other comments on the music or the framing devices? Um, I'll, I'll add. I'll add. Uh, sure. This, this is this is going to come back in my, my bottom three, but I generally got quite. I'm going to be open and honest here. I got quite frightened in the opening 
10 minutes because to me it screamed 1980s and the one thing <laughs> the one thing that worried me I about mean, Bob it's Foster, just one fame. year yeah. away yes yeah. <laughs> but it just it had it just screamed that aesthetic the the, the pop song and we, we're watching these like intercuts of this like of a, of a weird montage that just like horribly framed in the 1980s. It just gives me nightmares. So the audition, you didn't like the audition? No, no, just to explain. When we've we've dissected these two films beforehand, right, that I've always found him to be an incredibly enriching sort of type of editor. And 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 I felt that Cabaret was one step just to get it right. And then in Lennet, I felt like he had this perfect combination between style and substance. Uh, cutting back and forth framing device and I, I, I was because uh, I hadn't seen this when I was watching it I was like right he's he's evolving an, uh, from the the ideal idea that he's put forward into framing it as he did Lena in here and it's going to work so much better here and the first five ten minutes of the audition scene I was like oh this to me felt like it was a remove from the 1970s Bob Fawcett into like a 1980s one I was like the one thing I just didn't want him to lose grasp in what I loved beforehand. Granted, slowly but surely, it was like it, it came down again. I was like, and then we, we cut back to the angel. And I was like, oh, this, what, eh, what, what's happening here? And then it sort of becomes slightly more clear, but it's never crystal clear. He always gives this, he's always pushing it away from us to sort of grasp until we get to that that, that last 30 minutes that Sarah was, was talking about because I think it perfectly it, it gets really deep into that then which I don't think there's a, there's a, not a problem necessarily but I really like how he frames it I like the the non-linear dynamic I like how he utilizes that I like how he use, utilizes his, his production design his set design I think it's always interesting um but those that that, that audition scene I was like Oh, please don't do this to me, because I just you wanted need to watch Sweet Charity. I will. Well, I will do. I will do. But <laughs> just, I just to see what it could have been. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but that's what worried me because I wanted to see a director who who was evolving. Because I said I said this to you on the Cabaret episode that I'm not going to watch these in out of order. I want to watch the progression, and the, I'm so glad I've done that because I, I've, I'm watching a director in front of my eyes grow which is weird because he's dead and it was in the 1979, but alas, I'll move on. It's just interesting to see a director grow organically within the time that they were released. And I think here he perfectly grasps the idea to frame, block, com- uh, to, to co- composition and edit. And I think it all just gels here brilliantly. Again, I think to get what is, feels like three hours of material into two hours is, is applauded that very many many could do but there's one thing I do I do want to mention and I think Sarah mentioned as well is the body bag at the end I think that's such a wonderful thing to do because I think this film is actually quite funny in parts Le- Lenny is in weird ways because it's like ah I laugh with those because it's like yeah he's telling the truth about stuff Cabaret I found not very funny at all I, I didn't think it very warm for, for obvious reasons about the rise of Nazism. I don't think we're going to be laughing at anything anytime soon in there. But here, th- this is a really warm film in the sense that, that there's quite a few bits of funny. There's, I don't want to ruin it. There's one bit where there's just before this stage something where a guy comes on screen and says a few lines. And I sat there and I, I generally almost pissed myself laughing. I was like, is he doing that on purpose? Or is that just like, because the, the people inside the film laugh. And I was digested. I was like, no, and then then you get to the end, and you have this wonderful, um, uh, this this wonderful production, this production value of this this him sending himself running into the crowd, 
and, and, it, and it, we have this sort of like angelic feeling and then bang, the body bag gets put up. And I was like, that is such a devilish thing to do. And that's like a typical type of sense of humor directors of this caliber type, especially Bob Fosse's personality in that it means nothing. It means everything, but it means nothing. And I love that sensibility of him. He, 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 he taking himself, he understands what he's doing. He's, he's showcasing the sort of double standard of the, this person's work in the sense that at the time, this is this everything matters. But at the end of the day, we, once you're dead, you're dead. You can't take anything with you. And I think that perfectly encapsulates this whole film. If not Bob Fosse, in that you have this extravagant musical piece. Him, I, I, like again, I, I said before, a manager twat of a three-way um, meta conversation between Joe Gideon, Bob Fosse as Joe Gideon, and then Bob Fosse directing them all. And then you have this extravagant set piece. And then when it's all said and done, a body a body bag is put forward. We have this song cut into, and then we cut to the credits. I think it's brilliant. I think it's he knew exactly what he was doing. And, and, and I granted, I'm getting to the point where I'm feeling that I'm finding that hole that I didn't have when I started this. And it's, and it's, and it's, it, cool. it's, it's there. It's definitely there. So everyone's happy with the ending? Oh, no. and it couldn't have been done in any other way, I think. Okay, perfect, because... His best friend, Patty Chayefsky, was sort of complaining to him, your characters never change. <laughs> mm. We talked about this before, too. But I think but this, that's this, the point. That's exactly yes. what I think, too. Like that, it's, like I mean, Fosse but, but, has this Cassavetes type of fascination that this is, this is a story. This is, a, this is the story of me as it happens, but it's real. And I want to be as authentic about telling it as I can, you know, even though I've got, an eye and a you know for this this weird dreamscape and just all these you know visual flourishes and bring in my song and dance piece to it he's still at its core fleshing out real characters in a documentary style almost i want to say at least in terms of how he plums the characters um and that's sort of a cassavetes thing maybe to a certain point a friedkin thing and uh, it's he totally fits so well here in the 70s it's 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 fascinating to me you know it. what he also does? Like, in, like, I know, like, filmmakers always have this, you know, it's like the Fassbinder quote that every time I think about it, I feel like oh, I owe someone a pound, you know? Like, the sort of, like, the filmmakers always come back to do the same thing all over and over again. Mm-hmm. Like, people tend to just remake the same film and retell the now same you story. You mentioned Paul Schrader there, but just to get one in as well. <clears throat> yeah, like, again, like, Paul Schrader could not... <laughs> just yeah. get over Taxi Driver so much that he keeps coming back to it every three years or so. Anyway, but like what I'm trying to say is like his entire filmography. I mean, I don't know much about his Broadway sort of repertoire, so I I can't necessarily say speak to that too much. But like on film, he kind of found himself a little bit different. I think he it's a bit of a different means of ex- expression for, for him, specifically that he almost reinvents the musical. Like the film starts with this sort of the audition sequence that looks nothing like what a musical in the 60s would have looked like, right? Exactly, yeah. It, yeah. it has this sort of the very tight sort of, sort of fly-on-the-wall sort of character, right? But what I'm trying to say is this guy's, like he thinks sweet charity, character-wise, sweet charity, um, Liza Minnelli in Cabaret, forget her name. Jesus, what's the character's name? Sally Bowles. Sally, thank you. Um, jo, uh, Joe Gideon here. Lenny Bruce, another character like this. Starity, I haven't seen, so I can't, I can't speak to that anyway. So next week, stay tuned, folks. But what I'm trying to say is he gravitates to these characters who are driven by these obsessions. They're deluded, they're obsessed, 
and they and, and they're driven by by some kind of an external force that's that you cannot explain like you know like what's her, what's her face Shirley McLean in in Sweet Charity she's just out of, of her mind like when you think about it like yes <laughs> she just thinks she just deserves a job and she's just get, like remo- she, she's this sort of Disney skill. princess on a quest she's just like remained hopeful ever after and whatever like Sa- Sally in Cabaret she's gonna be dancing her way uh, while the Nazi like you know like, like like this sort of meme TikTok girl who just danced in front of the government building <laughs> in Myanmar cool. while these Land Rovers come in and just arrest everyone and she's just dancing because she's obsessed and just folk fo- meanwhile the, Joe Gideon same thing like he's just has the, all these women around him just like f- 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 just pleading for him just like can you please dad can you sit down you look terrible can you just you're exhausted you can't keep you can't do do this because you're gonna die and he keeps doing it anyway lenny bruce another guy who's just consumed by a mission to just turn his stand-up career into a i don't know free speech absolutism of some description like you know it's he's He's that kind of guy, and he's he, he, all, of a, all of a sudden he's I don't know how I you know how I ended up in this. So I don't know. I might as well do this to myself. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm just gonna just I'm just gonna re- withdraw and just like fade into black because I don't know what my point was. So I'm gonna just there we go. But it sounded it sounded great. Okay, okay. he's finally become the villain. <laughs> Excellent. I did it to myself. Good. Dude, does anyone else? Have, is amazing. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I second that. Does anyone else have anything on their radar? I have one other thing I think that I want to ask you guys about. But do you guys have anything else you want to get off your chests? Okay. No. <laughs> I have a question, and I'm looking for your help in here. So CCH Pounder shows up in this. She's a nurse at the end, and just watching it this week, this is the first time it it dawned on me that that's who this was. But Towards the end of the movie, CCH Pounder is a is a nurse in Joe Gideon's room, and he is uh, he's starting to slip away. So the doctors take him away, but CCH Pounder says, "Oh, what? Uh, I just gave him I gave, gave him his medicine. Like he shouldn't be in pain. I don't know what's going on. He shouldn't be in pain." So then the doctors take him away, and she's left in the room with Audrey, the wife, and CCH Pounder says. Okay, so you can just send the check to this address and walks out and then Audrey says, bitch, and then this the scene ends. It's really sort of odd to me. And I was one and most I think the other times I've seen it, it didn't really dawn on me what was going on because it's this you can just send the check along to this address or whatever. And I was like, I don't know if I've ever really thought about that moment before. And I, I did a little bit of a deep dive maybe online, which I shouldn't, but I, there's a couple of theories is that maybe the, uh, the Broadgate, the Broadgate, broad the Broadway guys who the, want, the, who want the musical to fail, <laughs> <laughs> maybe they paid her uh, to sabotage him or to kill him or something. Um, or maybe the Gideon. Mafia? Maybe. Or maybe Gideon himself did. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe Gideon paid for sort of a a merciful death. Um, Do you guys have any theories on this? Or did did, did this sort of catch your attention 
maybe because I've seen it so many times, it finally took hold. Maybe you guys need to see it another eight times. <laughs> I think that's kind of the case for me. Yeah. Okay. Did okay. not I, notice like one bit. That didn't register for me, but like <clears throat> thinking about it now and something that I picked up on this time is how the producers are kind of, when they're sitting around that table having the conversation about like how they're going to make money of this, of this, they're essentially like betting on whether he lives or dies so or like saying you know well if he dies it will actually make more money so i wonder if one of them has just been slipping some money into i don't know maybe yeah it it's interesting it's interesting to think about um and this is sort of an interesting angle we didn't really touch on what do you think fossey might be saying about um the nature of the business because there is a comment in here i think that and I like I sort of take the the business talk, which doesn't include uh, Joe Gideon. He's not in. I think these are the only scenes maybe he's not in. I want to say mm-hmm. is that these these business scenes, and to me they tie into the very last shot where the body bag closes. Is you know stuff's just it's, things are going to keep on going on, and it doesn't matter if you were an important creative in the history of Broadway or not. You're you're done. Like and actually if we can make a buck without you this is actually sort of appealing <laughs> you know so i think there's probably a, a bit of a comment here too and that, that fossey is throwing in here about the nature of film criticism you know these these women and their balloons and their one balloon or whatever and it was actually these, half a balloon but you know <laughs> and and these guys sitting around a table with a calculator <laughs> and this is all they do to the point that Wallace Shawn is punching the numbers into a calculator without even looking at the calculator so clearly this is this is his expertise and that's what these these men do they just sort of process whether or not something is viably viable financially and then say go or no go and art isn't involved and you know the humans aren't involved it's all economics i i don't know even even if like for for gideon like it doesn't come across that for him art is involved anyway because like for 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 like these guys you can clearly say this is a business for the for the critics it's kind of like it's also a business because it's for them it's kind of just like i talk about this and they get uh, and they get me money and i just i i contribute you know i feel like gideon and fossey bikes and so by speaking through through him right he says that he doesn't know what it is it's a compulsion he's kind of like richard Dreyfus in close encounters like it's a potato mashed potato mountain for him like he has to make it he has to be perfect he doesn't know why but he's got to do it you know so it's not like he's i don't think like Fossey's commenting on this like this is my art this is how i express myself he's i think he's just compelled to just like i gotta do this right so and he's clearly different to these guys who just like we spent one hundred twenty three thousand dollars on on just set decoration alone, mm. you know. I think there is an art piece, though. I think in a way, this is what Fosse gravitates towards as, as part of his identity, because what and what drives him is just he's got a, a, a track record of staring at something that's really plain, and how can I improve this? How can I fix this? Like the erotica sequence, like it starts off as this bouncy, it's bouncy. And, uh, but he's staring at it. like, this is so plain and this is so blah. And he stares at it for the longest time. And he's doing these things where he's clapping his hands and trying to get a rhythm and he's trying to feel the rhythm. And for this 
the sequence and what can I do to improve it? Um, but I think he feels that he can usually get there. And if he can't, he'll just cut it. He says that a couple of times. Why don't we just cut it, cut it? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think the, the artistry is, is a piece in here as much as the, as the yeah. driven. There's this moment when when he's editing uh, Lenny, or what is essentially Lenny, right? When he says, I'm going to make it better. And just like, he makes these changes to the edit. I'm just like, I'm not sure he's making it better. (laughs) But he just like, he makes these subtle changes. So I was like, I told you I'll make it better. And then everyone's like, son of a bitch made it better. I'm just like, And he stares at it for weeks before it comes to him. But the differences, but the changes he makes are so minute that you're just thinking to yourself like, wow looks the same to me <laughs> so it's kind of like you, you can you can you can smell that he sees stuff that we don't see and he he's not even bothering to explain to anyone what he does what his process is he just doesn't like imagine like like jackson pollock would be just standing over his like canvas in his barn you know like when he's like coked out out of his mind or something while just spraying paint and he's not explaining himself just like this is how i include you know like the references to my childhood this way no he's just like i'm it feels right, so I'm doing it. And I don't have to explain myself to anyone, thanks. So I feel like this kind of comes across to me that he's... Yeah, he like you can see, you can see that the, the genius is in the fact that he doesn't necessarily tell you why he's doing things. He just tells you that he's doing things. Um, yes. Yes, but I, I think that he works it to a point and like he knows what he wants, right? So like mm-hmm. like his creative output, I think, is, is a, a big part of it. Okay. Anyway, that's kind of, I think I have, that's all I have. Um, it is for me, unless anyone going once, going twice, has anything to get off your chest. Sold. All right, let's move into our final thoughts. Fuck wrap, yeah! Wrap this up. <laughs> all right, Sarah, let's start with you. <laughs> what are your final <coughs> thoughts? How many stars... Yes. Um, <laughs> exactly. I... <laughs> <laughs> yes. One the, word review. All yes. of them. <laughs> the soundbite the really threw me off. I give it uh, four and a half balloons more than the person in the film gave it. I give oh it, goodness! I give it. Yeah. I give it five stars. Um, oh, it's a. <laughs> it's a. It's a great film. I toyed with it today as sort of whether it's. Whether it's like. Mm, just below five or not and then i was like no I, like there's 4. nothing 9. About, do it yeah do it. <laughs> yeah there's nothing about this film that i that i don't enjoy and i enjoyed it even more the second time around as i said earlier i i got more out of it this time because i think the first time i watched it i was just like a little bit overwhelmed by it because there's just like a lot happening um and i wasn't sort of really able to make sense of it in a way that made me feel satisfied that i'd made enough sense out of it um so this time watching it and i was like right yeah i i I get what all of these i see all these moving parts and i see them coming together in the way that i i didn't before and i think it's i i hope jack will consider watching this film again because i really think it is the sort of film that benefits from from multiple watches i I'm looking forward to when I can watch it again, when we cover it on the podcast. Or, I mean, um, my husband earlier was just like, oh, you watched it again without me because he hasn't seen it. And I was like, anytime you want to watch it, I will watch <laughs> it again. It's fine. So we might be watching it again soon. <laughs> but awesome. yeah, yeah, it's great. I have nothing more to say. <laughs> Brilliant summary. All right, Jack. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> to answer the question, is this an uncut gem? I don't think this should it should even be relevant. I think this this is generally a master at his craft who has those parallel lines between style and substance substance have converged and <laughs> it's, it's the magnum opus of his career. I think knowing you will never make something better than this, this is this is the blood, sweat, tears crafted in everything. Yes, it is a five-star film. I, I, I do generally think that. The, the, the difficulty I, I have here, and it's, 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 more so, it's more so an emotional response to it, is that regarding craft, I think this is a, a, like nothing short of, of, of genuinely just excellence. I think truly, I think, I think it's for a 1970s film, um, again, to incorporate musical numbers, which I don't particularly like the musical genre anywhere, but to do it in, in such a way where it's emotive to me and it, it doesn't sort of stagnate the, the actual storytelling is, is, is probably an achievement in its own right. But then to get the actual content, to get the, the emotive core, the characters, the story arcs, then he gets the editing, the flair, the tone, the thematic, the composition, the framing, everything here and the score, everything comes together in its sort of perfect harmony. The problem I have about this is that I find this emotionally draining to watch. And, it, and it's not... It's not is it bad? No. There you go. I rest but, my case. No, no, no. Prosecution I'm, rests. No, no. I've, like I said, I've not... Um, <laughs> I've not. I wouldn't criticize it in that way. I don't see that as a as a demeaning quality. This me finding emotionally um, difficult to watch is like me giving Schindler's List three stars because it's quite heavy. You know, like there's, there's a sort of a you, you've got. Did you, hold on. Did you give Schindler's List three out of five because it was heavy? No, that's that's a comparison. I'm no, it's, that's a comparison I'm making. I said if if it was like if you would so stop the venom and listen to what I'm actually <laughs> saying here. You'd, you'd, you'd educate yourself, okay? I, th- I think it's that combination where people look at something and, and, and take it as, because the material itself is quite difficult to experience, that should sort of n- negate the experience uh, on a rating scale. I, I don't so, so agree with that. I think th- this this is a five-star film production-wise regardless. I just think that the actual material itself is so heavy for me, it's so emotionally taxing. I think that's the reason I don't want to experience this again. I would watch this and I would appreciate it, uh, no doubt. But I think once it starts to get into the rhythm like it does in the film and then I start looking at past the surface, there's a different experience here for me where I find it, it's not morbid, that that, that would be sort of um, too desensitive, but there is a certain amount of emotional depth here that has to be sort of reciprocated in a way. You've got to You've got to really gel with it. And for me, I find it very taxing. That's not to say I wouldn't ever watch this again. I just wouldn't want to. I think it, my, my viewing, I got everything I wanted. I, I think if if the time came and there was, we were ever going to do this again on, on an academic stance, I would watch it. I just find on a personal level, I'd, I'd probably I'd just start crying probably the next time I watch this because I, I find it just like, it's it's generally a heartbreaking film and it's devised in such a way that it's like. It, it, <laughs> I don't want to, I was going to make it sort of a, a, a comparison there, but I'm not going to, but it almost intertwines you into that. It gets you on its side. It's happy, it's joy. Then it literally takes the, uh, the the carpet under your legs and like, well, welcome to hell and experience it. And I find that's what it is. It's it's a really tough watch for me. And, I, and I, it's more, more power to Bob Fosse, but I, I just, it, it, it would take me something to have to watch this again. But I'd like to watch it on a cinema screen. If I had the option to watch it at View or the Odeon, 
I'd be there in a heartbeat. I just thought I don't think I could say this demon again. But this is a five star film. This is exactly what I wanted on a Bob Fosse path. I wanted the combination of Cabaret and Lenny put together into this, and I've got it. I think it is just the perfect amalgamation of of a creative um, stance meets opportunity, and to have this. It's not even a love letter. It's almost like a last will and testament to those who don't know him, who are yet to know him. I think that's genius, but so morbid. But I'm I'm really glad we've done this because this is it, this is a, a definitely a, a feature I'd, I'd watch on the cinema screen again. I'd like to see the the cinematic quality. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it on a, on a cinema screen. It's all been on. See, yeah, I mean, nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, well, I watched it on the phone, picture in picture. So it was this time. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna make no comment there. Um, but but yeah, it was. Um, yeah, five star. I don't think you can even have the conversation about it being an uncut gem. I think it's pretty much <laughs> universally treated as a as a perfect piece. But no, it, it was an absolute yeah. pleasure to have this discussion, and it did fill that that hole I was missing. It definitely did. Awesome, Jakob. We're ten for ten. Right. Okay. So all I'll say is, this is coming from the same guy who did Sweet Charity. You know. Okay. I mean, first of all, like there is, there is a re- there. The only reason we're doing this is because it's your birthday. So it's just like it technically you. doesn't fit the bill, does it? Right. It really because doesn't. <laughs> Not only have we done it before. <laughs> yeah. Like we, sometimes but it's a we. I think sometimes we end up just talking about the film. It's just like, wow, well, it actually is like universal regard. It's like, wow. Well, well, it is what it is. So, however, I, I do feel like, um, you know, like, out of Fosse films, like most people would probably gravitate to Cabaret first um, as, as a sort of the more, more recognizable and I suppose like more um, conventional film, even though it's unconventional already. But then again, like the guy had to make Sweet Charity and fail because people, people, ugh, people of the time were already like sick and tired of musicals anyway. So he had to reinvent himself, and without this reinvention, he wouldn't be able to make this. Which I, I totally agree. It's his magnum opus. It's a movie that's way smarter than it looks, way deeper, more nuanced and layered than anyone would ever give it credit for. In critics of the time had absolutely no fucking idea what they were talking about. It's again. Because like I don't know, it's new. It's it's it dis- disrupts the format. I don't know, ruins their algorithm somehow. Like cri- critics, when some some something comes along that's just a little bit different, it really messes with their algorithm. Like it's <laughs> it's 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 very odd. But overall, it's a film that I really look forward to rewatching. I've seen this twice already, and now it's a full five five out of five. You know, uh, it, essential viewing for anyone who finds themselves in a, like in a weird mode of appreciation for like Roy Scheider. It's just like, I really enjoy this guy. Like, or whatever, just watch this. You gotta watch all that jazz. This is where this guy really peaks. It's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Bob Fosse is, is, is just such an outlandishly out there director who's now I can see how much of an influence he may have exerted over the medium how he reinvented musicals he probably had a hand in how what we now understand music videos are um mm-hmm. and then like terry gilliam you know blade runner looks the way it does probably because ridley scott was kind of like high on all that jazz i kid you yeah. not 
probably would, wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Wait, like so um, many, come on, that's a bit of a re- that, that's that's a bigger. He was a music than video Halo, director. Come on, like he was. Yeah, th- these guys were were looking up to musical directors. Come on, be be honest. Oh, be honest. Well, I think that's okay? a reach. I'll give you that because you know I'm nice, but I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll, so, I'll, yeah. I'll tack Lynch <laughs> onto your discussion too. So yeah, that's me. Five, okay. five out of five. Full fat five. Thank you very much. Bob Fosse is the is the bomb. We're the bo- we're the Bob Fosse posse, you know. <laughs> so brilliant, brilliant. Yes. So I agree with bomb diggity is what it is. I agree with everything that all of you said, um, except that I would find this difficult to watch again. And I can appreciate where your comments coming from, uh, Jack. So. For me, this is when someone asks me, what's your favorite film? This here is what I say is my favorite film. I can go to this any day of the week. There is a nostalgia piece in here for whatever the reason. This just hit me really, really amazingly whenever I first saw it at some point in the 90s. And then even in recent years as a parent, I look at this in a different way. After having my own heart surgery, I look at this in a different way as well. So I can appreciate the idea of having these conversations with yourself. What if? Well, what if that surgery didn't go well? Because I had another friend from university, actually, who had the same surgery a few years after I did. And he died a week or so after the surgery. So I can appreciate, you know, what might be part of the thought process that Fosse had by saying, how do I capture this? And, you know, some of the thoughts like... You know, what, what would death look like? Like it's, it's all in here. This is jam packed. And last night, so I watched this a week ago and I watched it again last night. And when I was watching it last night, I said, okay, well, I'm not going to get emotional this time during the end. And then sure enough, halfway through Scheider runs up through the audience and he's high-fiving people from his past. He's embracing his daughter and it's like, oh my God, there it is. And, you know, the, the tears come Dad's crying again. <laughs> yeah. well, well, last week I watched it with my son and he's looking over. First time he looks over is, is uh, you know, during one of the nudities. <laughs> he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger. What's wrong in your eyes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's looking over well, like during Erotica when uh, Sandal Bergman takes her top off and he's like, Dad. And then at the end he's looking over when I'm sort of crying and sniffling to myself. He's like, dad so anyway thank you campbell for your patience but anyway did you, did you cry cry when sandal bergman took her top off no i didn't one of those vistas i didn't cry i was just i was marveling to myself oh you know what all the uh, dancers are saying their actual names hi i'm sandal and the other thing that i thought was really interesting in there were the, there were these two uh the two gay dancers in there um and they they hook hands and they say hi i'm john hi I'm Gary. And actually, we have uh, friends, my wife's cousin, they're getting married and it's John and Gary. And I thought that was just sort of great. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Five star film, masterpiece, love it to pieces. So let's go into our top lists, our top threes. Sarah, can you pick three things you like out of this film? Ugh, this was so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Honorable um, mentions, welcome. You know, just yeah, saying. As many as you like. <laughs> I was I stuck to the brief. I've just done I've just done the the straight three. But um so I guess I go like least least best to best, but I've got 
um, what I've called in my notes the sexy sweaty dance, which is the erotic <laughs> sequence. But I prefer it is my sexy notes. and it is sweaty. Yes, <laughs> correct um, on both. Yeah, I just Check. think it's Check. it's like simultaneously like like I said earlier, grimy and dirty and vulgar and beautiful all at the same time. And it's just, it it encapsulates so much of what this film is and trying to do and that sort of blurring of lines, which I just absolutely love. Um, and it's funny too at points. Smoke. Yeah. Smoke. Yeah. Could you imagine yeah. what, what this room smelled like, by the way? Because it's right. a very, like so many people, it's probably smelled like a yeah. hamster cage. Like this is Musty. <laughs> Yeah, there's um, a really funny line in that sequence as well. There's This film is a lot funnier than I remember just generally, but um, where one of the producers like looks at one of the others or like says an aside and is like, I think we just lost the family audience. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um, Sinatra's never going to record this now. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> There's so many good one-liners this film, honestly. Yeah. Um, my second, I guess, is kind of cheating because it's uh, lots of moments, but just the the It's Showtime folks various throughout the film. Um, just love seeing that sort of journey and decline of the character. Um, and my favourite, I don't think we've actually mentioned this bit yet, but it's when um, Katie and Michelle do their little dance routine I think it's one of the like nicest, sweetest scenes in the whole film. Like it shows, I mean, she is Katie is his girlfriend, Simon Charles his daughter, and it's they clearly have like quite a nice relationship as well, which I think is is good. And I, it's one of the only times in the film that we see Gideon kind of genuinely happy mm-hmm. as well. Um, oh, there's another yeah. scene where he we, we we see him happy, but it's gonna come back. Yeah, but like a, a kind of a, like a pure joy, yeah. like just seeing seeing his daughter and, and yeah. his girlfriend kind of perform in this quite sweet dance routine. It's, I enjoy yeah. that. I, I came across an interview with Scheider where he was talking about that sequence and he said he was working in one room on, on something and uh, Fosse came in and he said, Roy, come, come here, I want to show you something. So he takes him to this other room where um, Anne Reinking and the the young actress, they were working on this and said, okay, just just sit there, Roy, and I, I just want to show you this. <clears throat> and Scheider was blown over with emotion and he thought that was just so amazing. And he said, Mr. Fosse, do not, we, we can't rehearse this again. The next time I see this is when we want to be shooting because I hope I can get a reaction close to what I was feeling this time because it was just so amazing so i don't know if he did see it again until they shot but anyway that like he he himself thought that was an amazing piece mm. yeah it feels like a ge- like a that kind of tracks because it feels like a very genuine mm. reaction that he's that he's having to see in it as well i will maybe i'll throw in one honorable mention because Definitely. i wrote down some of the other I'll give you two, actually, because I wrote oh, down some of the goodness. things that made me laugh. <laughs> I know, that's me being like, oh, I'm being good, playing by the rules. Um, that's a conversation between, like, two of the rejected dancers, I think, like, right near the beginning. And one of them's just like, fuck this guy, he never picks me. And the other one responds, honey, I did fuck him and he still didn't pick me. And I was like, A plus. Yep. Really good. Yep. Um, 
Put and then it in my top list. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a great line that Katie has as well, um, where she's just like, I just wish you weren't so generous with your cock. And that really yes. made me laugh as well. Yep. And he's like, that's good. Maybe I can use that sometime. <laughs> like yes. always just thinking, always thinking about like what will make a good line. And there's a great bit that follows that as well, where like um, he is in the other room and he's sort of like very dramatically like hands on the on the, on the wall and is like, telling Katie not to go on the tour and then she's like wrong reading (laughs) and he's like comes in and he's like softly and with feeling and then he sort of says it again I just love how that shows that just everything in his life being like a performance but yeah there's some really great and very funny kind of back and forth lines between the characters in this that I appreciated absolutely amazing all right Jack um share uh, I just I've done three um I've mentioned these, but there's one that <laughs> someone mentioned earlier. Mentioned earlier, I've got to. It's definitely made my top three. I pissed myself when it happened on screen. But the the the, the third one is the body bag at the end. I was like, I think that's like such a whimsical, like really funny statement to make at the end of this film that it means nothing, but everything means so much. I I love that sort of texture that he adds to the film. Um, like this weird tongue in cheek, um, little bit of, of a dig toward towards the. Uh, film itself um i'm gonna i'm gonna change these around because I, I do really like the first one but the second one throughout is, is sort of just a a flat conscious um uh, element to it but i really like the editing in this film i think it's genius how it plays with it it's, it's always inviting very vague but also honest things could happen here things couldn't happen here very interesting how, 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 we, how we use as a projection of it uh, but number one, and I don't know why this is so funny, but it is the smoke people, smoke people. I, I just, <laughs> I find that so funny. Like, I, 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 I genuinely couldn't tell if it was like meant to be comedic, but then people in the, in the actual thing were laughing as well. I was like, is that meant to be funny? But I, I reround it like three or four times, and each time the guy comes in, like just like dem- commands the screen, like Lawrence Olivier of his time, straight in there. <laughs> smoke people, smoke people, and it's like oh, it's all going dark, and he's spraying. Oh, it's like. What a wonderful way to just take all the air out of that film, and then mm. and then we get the big this the big sexual sensual sequence itself. Like it's absolute genius. He sets the tone of a comedic element, and then just takes it straight out. And there you go. I thought, fuck, I thought you genius. I thought you bastard. Thought, what a wonderful way to play with your audience. But that, that's my top three, um, which is a lot easier really? to do than the other list we're going to do very soon. <laughs> Right, well said, Jakob. By the way, the smoke people, smoke people. I feel like this is a direct inspiration for that scene in Friends where Ross goes, pivot, pivot. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> that's a, that's another reach, but maybe. That's that's me, baby. Okay, I've got a list. I've got a few. Okay, well, Sarah just, you know, like pillaged my list of it. So I've got like, fuck him, he never picks me. Oh, honey, I did fuck him and he never picks me either. <laughs> so, what a line. Um, the we just lost the family audience. Like, do you gotta have <laughs> yeah. like the minute the like, guy just holds his hands like it's just this, and he's just like, We just lost the family audience. What a great line. I really like the uh, the the, the, the Leslie Perry <laughs> critic scene where she's just dispassionately, This reviewer was left, and you almost feel like you just stop caring about the shit she says, and then the camera just slowly zooms in on Roy Scheider's face and almost feels like he has like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> but it's such a subtle piece of filmmaking 
that you you could you could easily just disregard and just move along but it's a it's a very sort of nuanced moment that shows you just how much this guy cares this is the mm-hmm. the need for external validation you can you can almost like you feel like Bart Simpson's like if you pause it right you can see it's heartbreak enough you know <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of how he feels but the, like the best moment like I could go so like like the last 30 minutes just a quarter of the film five stars you know <clears throat> but the moment where it, you you cut to the so you have the spikely zoom um into Jessica Lang's sort of open embrace and then not on the beat in between the beats the film cuts into a into a body bag when we're done here like what a genius move like th- this mm-hmm. is you know like b- balls on the table you know it's a sort of moment i really love this fantastic five stars Brilliant. did i say five stars i think it's five stars okay, five anyway. 20 20 out of 20 because <laughs> that's how we roll on fossey mm. month okay um yeah just in my little ones i had the smoke smoke that's just <laughs> fantastic uh just so good okay um what else okay number three uh yeah sarah you dipped into my list too the katie and michelle dance number says so much about the the characters here and the relationships there's so much love and affection here for joe gideon um even though he doesn't really know how to use it but it just informs so much and it, it goes to what jack was talking about earlier the emotional core is quite probably the relationship with the daughter and that is front and center here and i love it and it's just it's beautiful <laughs> chemistry between the daughter and ann reinking and ann reinking is like she is a the way she moves like those leg kicks and she just has a lot of presence and you can just imagine that she was a very powerful um presence on a broadway stage you can just you can just feel it in, in this just just a lovely lovely scene um and yeah i'm and torn between I'm, oh my god and i'm gonna come i don't know which one to choose the, the michael douglas oh god there you go oh my god <laughs> awesome okay um number two i love the blurring of the medical and the showbiz imagery i think it's absolutely fantastic um and especially the whole business just the the idea of flirting with death and just taking that as sort of a this abstract concept and running with it and then that's sort of the that's your your signpost that you check in with every once in a while to introduce your chapters for the for the narrative and the structure just so fantastic and then of course the prepping him to die where the nurses are wiping his brow but uh, Jessica Lang is putting on makeup and it is just the best. And, uh, oh, I have one more. I'll throw it in here too. And it has to do with uh, Angelique. Just the opening lines where we, we meet her. You're a real drinker, aren't you, Joe? And speed and sleep with a lot of women. And then Joe says, yeah, a real turnoff, right? The exact opposite. There's just, the script here is so sharp. So much is communicated with so little. And I think that that is just fantastic you know because this is the angel of death of course you know this lifestyle is completely attractive to her just it's just mm, wonderful wonderful and then of course i've, I've got to say this the song the swan song the final number the last 10 or 11 minutes it's to me it's it's just the best scene in film i i can watch this any day of the week it just it moves me 
Ben Vereen to open the scene. He's magnetic and just absolutely wonderful. Um, and then the number itself is a showstopper. So that's me. Okay. Bottoms. Sarah, there can't be mm-hmm. many. <laughs> it will have to be at least three. I don't want to. <laughs> you can't make me. <laughs> you don't know where I live. <laughs> um, actually, actually, I do. <laughs> actually, yeah. You, <laughs> you sent me a, a very nice little mug in the post. Um, <laughs> so, you know, three it is. Because I'm going to show up at your house. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this one might be a bit. This one might be a bit cruel. Um, I think she's a very good actress and she's a very good dancer, but um, the actress who plays his daughter, I don't think she can sing very well. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, and, and like, it, I don't know. She's such a good dancer that I can kind of forgive it. And this is me being like very, very petty, but like when she kind of like, and she has like a song kind of in like the towards the end of the film, and I was kind of like, oh, they maybe they could have found a better singer um anyway we move on <laughs> sarah or just or just dub over her in the edit yeah. <laughs> right yeah exactly before we make this the me insulting kids podcast um the <laughs> the the hospital montage but like the the bit where he is kind of still conscious and like partying and doing all sorts in hospital like to agree with my co-host a little bit, I feel if there's any bit that labors the point a little bit too much, it's it's that it kind of just I, I get it, I get it. Yeah. Like he's not really looking after himself and it kind of just like it's maybe just like a smidge too long. But still a perfect film. Still enjoy it a great <laughs> deal. Um and then the <laughs> my number one, um, just because of the visceral reaction i had to this particular bit is like when it shows the bits of like the heart when they're doing the open heart surgery <laughs> because it like it's really quick but i was just like <laughs> like <laughs> i'm quite yeah. squeamish so it almost made me throw up and i was oh, like jesus but it's no, on, it's like that. a blink and you miss it so it's almost like you have this like a fight club just like a flash and you just <laughs> but this <Yeah>. just <laughs> It's long gone, a- but the but the gag reflex gag right? reflex was yeah. activated. So yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, all right. That was almost exactly what happened as well. Just watching it, it's just like, oh, I'm enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like- <laughs> Chest yeah. cavity. Oh my god. <laughs> all right, Jack. So what have you got to, for us? Just to echo Sarah, I, I generally did find this list to be difficult to do as well. I, I'm going to like scrape here at the bottom of the barrel, but. This is really difficult to do because, like I said earlier, there's very little within the context of its cinematic craft that you can you can go for. I will say this this point. Um, I find that like there's quite a few comments Sarah made about the last thirty minutes. I think um, the partner was saying about it, and I, I do have to sort of like I don't necessarily agree with with, with it. I don't think it's a detriment, but I do agree that it's like ah, oh, we get it now. I think you could easily shave the economic subplot about the play, about the play, about the uh, the, the actual musical, but also the whole John Lithgow thing for me is like, really, like we're just slowing this down to a point where we're trying to focus on quite imperative moments in Bob Fosse's life, and we're cutting back to a character that I don't care about, I don't understand why he's in it, and he has absolutely no impact in it whatsoever. Um, it's aside from to re- reaffirm and reinforce that he isn't. 
Joe Gideon, he isn't Bob Fosser, so they have to go with someone who can't do the job to that extent. It's like, well, I get that, but the whole point of the film is sort of reinforcing that point. So it was like, ah, I just felt it was like a bit bit too much as a subplot. I think you get rid of that. You can cut this down to at least an hour and 50 minutes. I think it's perfect, but it, it, that's just a, a personal thing. I know that I'm going to take this from Jakob, but I'm going to say it. I don't like the Lenny stuff, in the, especially the actor. Get Dustin Hoffman in or actually like utilise footage within the film. For me, it was like, I was like, is that is that Lenny? Are they actually doing that? Is that, is that Lenny? What, what's going on here? And then it was like, well, yeah, it must be because he's talking about with a comedian, he's, he's editing what he did for like eight months. And I, and I found that the um, him to get on with his work was quite interesting and how it utilised the, the film within a film. But I just, that, that um, the, the actor, obviously, who, who would have played it in whatever Broadway play, it's like so uncharismatic, and when he's even in the in the in the theater room with him when he, before he's having his, his surgery, I was like, "You've got no charisma whatsoever. Like you've got absolutely no charisma. It's just, you're just so monotone. It just didn't have that power for me." Um, I don't want to talk myself down from five stars. I'd be careful here, so yeah, I'm just gonna so say that. Too late. You can't. You can't. No. It's, <laughs> it's I've good. said it. We should never do yeah. this. You should yeah. do. Why do we not? Why do we? Why do we do this? Before or after we actually say the five stars, because then we just the that's last, exactly why. But the yeah. last thing we talk about is things we don't like about the film. That's exactly why. Right. Um, <laughs> this is this is another personal preference that the my, my number one, but it really annoyed me with Cabaret, and it's a choice of lenses he uses that it it creates this sort of halo effect, this weird um, the gel whatever oh, filter that he has. Oh my! God, I hate it. No, I hate it. I hate it when it's used in cabaret, and I hated it here. But he only mm-hmm. utilizes this in a certain uh, in a certain context within the film when he's talking it's just to with the, the Angelique. Yes, right? yeah. and I sort of I understand why he's utilizing that, and I sort of get it, but I still don't like it. I think it's such a shit technique. It's like the lens flare with J.J. Abrams. Like I get it. Like let's stop doing it now. I get it. You you enjoy it, but for me it was like. Oh, because it because it obviously it's the first sort of few bits in the film, and I was like it, again with the issue when it goes into like the uh, the 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 audition. There was like, oh please, I want to see, I want to see something new. I want to see him get it, and then to give me the two sequences where I was like, oh no, please don't do this, don't do an eighties movie, and then don't give me those fucking lenses that color. Like, please don't do it. And Think it, about it. The eighties movie happens because of that. No, Just stop saying. it! You, you like Just you get one on one, getting nine. Stop! <clears throat> I know it's late for us, but stop. <laughs> um, but th- I'd have to stop there. But the, the personal preferences, but the biggest one is like the more the more I think about it, the more I just don't like the John Lithgow subplot. I'm like, why is it there? And again, I didn't I didn't realize the thing with the nurse. I think I, if that if you're reading into that, that's probably accurate. But I was like, that's such a strange sequence to have in the film where she just attacks her. Can you pay me? Like, I was like, what is going on? I felt like I fell asleep or, or missed something. But yeah, those subplots could go or, or make them bigger, have them actually have impact. But other than that, I'm going to have to stop talking because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start yeah, going down no, the road. You leave, your, you leave your five alone. Jakob? <laughs> right. It was really hard. So some of them are kind of like annoyances and, and a few are. Now, there's one real annoyance and then a few are just bizarre moments. So, I think I had this like when we first recorded this with Nicolo. I think this was my pet. It kind of is my pet peeve, just in general. Like the out of tune piano, like fuck me. 
Like whenever they're just like practicing this, like, hey, chum, are you gonna come, you know? I'm gonna come. And whatever. And the piano is just out of tune. I'm just like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds wrong. Like it sounds like annoying almost just. And then no one, no one cares. Anyway, <clears throat> another bizarre moment that really kind of just, I don't know. I mean, I think I know why it's there, but it's almost like a superfluous moment. Like these sort of the... Um, they come come back to it a few times when he just he lies on the bed and he pinches the nurse and he's Mr. Gideon, you know, and he goes like, "Oh, you're gonna you're gonna give me an erection," and he and he has one. I'm like, "Fucking Jesus, why why is it here?" Like just like Bob, Bobby, <laughs> of all this, like if there is anything you can just take out of this film, it's probably this. <laughs> just, just saying like, "Wow, why do I like you know, this?" Like this, it's movie. This movie is busy enough with, without this. And then the, I have to agree with Jack. There's so like the, the maybe this is why Len, Leonard Moulton had a problem because it, it maybe it's him. You know, it's not Lenny Bruce. Um, just I mean, actually, as I say, I'm gonna add another one because it's not only that it's Lenny Bruce sort of no someone's trying to do a Lenny Bruce stand up and failing at it because the guy is like totally uncharacter like he's just like a. F- f- someone's bombing on 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 stage and you don't know why but the fact that this is where the uh, the the kubler ross thing kind of happens so profoundly that after a while you just think like we get it bob <laughs> we get it five stages of grief we get it like we got it the first time you don't i well you have to okay well fine you repeat yourself one more time then okay now are we done now like i feel like at this point like because every time Lenny Bruce comes back on stage, they still keep re-editing the same scene. So you keep hearing about these five stages. Like, we can get it, Lenny. Like, yeah, that's kind of me. That's, it's not necessarily that these, these are like bad elements of the film that would just maybe weigh in on my on my rating. It's just like small annoyances for the most part. But the out-of-tune piano, like, holy shit. Like, maybe this is just what it is. And people have these sort of massive instruments that you have to call in an expert to, to tune this, then it will be in tune for like a day. And then for like the next six <laughs> months, it's just like, Jesus. Six <laughs> months of rehearsal. All right. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you. For me, uh, not really a negative, but I'll mention, just because I've mentioned all year when it's happened, child smoking alert. So there's that. The Sydney Poitier parenting <laughs> sydney party school of parenting here's a cigar in a, in a glass of whiskey right so so there's that okay uh number three in the business scene that we've talked about a little bit they're discussing insurance and production costs one of the one of the managers of the production is there and he pulls out a brush from his back pocket and starts brushing his hair in a business meeting. And I'm like, what am I watching? What is going on? This weird. As you do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, there's that. Um, number two. Uh, yeah, the whole business with the CCH Pounder character. Uh, I think, Jack, you said it perfectly. Don't have it or flush it out so that it has the meaning that may have been intended in there. But as is, it's almost throwaway and it's sort of weird and it's suggestive of these other things. And maybe if there's a suggestion, well, maybe Gideon asked to die and she's helping him and it's an assisted suicide. Maybe there's a point to that, but, you know, establish it a little bit better. This was, it's just sort of there. It's almost as if they had, there's a whole scene, but the other footage wasn't usable or something. So we'll just sort of put in this sort of tail end of it. 
But anyway, take it out or make it work. And According to the Wikipedia, this is her first role. Yes, it's her debut. Um, and for me, number one, uh, John Lithgow, uh, the restaurant scene. I'm not sure we like there's two scenes with Lithgow, I think it is. And we definitely don't need both. I can get behind the idea of maybe what his involvement represents, but you definitely don't need two scenes. And I would probably get rid of the restaurant one, but you know, anyway, but as is, it's still a perfect film. So there's that. Okay. Let's drop the curtain on all that jazz. This Fosse flick can be hard to find actually, uh, depending on the jurisdiction in Italy, Canada, Germany. It's not streaming anywhere, nor can you rent it. Uh, anywhere online in the u.s it's available on tubi and mm -hmm. in ireland and the uk it's rare but you can rent it on sky right is how did you guys watch it oh someone owns it that's fantastic I got uh, it. yeah i've got the disc as well it's just a dvd because i couldn't because the criterion is only in the u.s so yeah Brilliant. that's yeah. all we have <laughs> in and, Yes, Tory Britain, all the jazz the, on just DVD. Scumbags. I have the DVD as well. I'm thinking, the more I think about it, why don't I have that criterion? I'm in a jurisdiction where I can get it, so that's either going to be a birthday gift or a uh, Christmas gift for myself um, really soon. So anyway, Sarah, where can our listeners find you and all of your great work? Uh, you can find me on... Twitter for as long as that's still a thing. I refuse to call it by its other name. Um, at Sarah Buttery on there. Um, you can also find my, I have to start saying podcasts now because we're going to have another one shortly. Um, Let's Jaws for a Minute is the one that is going on at the moment. We went minute by minute through Jaws uh, and are now covering anything else slightly related to Jaws um, and coming very soon a uh, new podcast same co-host um, called Let's Party with Marty which is a Martin Scorsese podcast so that will be coming wow. out cool. Cool. soon I think it the first episode drops on the 7th of November so okay name of it again very exciting um, let's <laughs> let's party with Marty <laughs> is the <laughs> awesome are you, okay are you going through all those documentaries that. as well Okay, so we so Martin Scorsese joined Letterbox. Much excitement happened uh, within twenty four hours. Me and MJ then had a podcast um, a logo on the way, a theme song, everything <laughs> <laughs> as quickly as we did with Jaws for a minute. Um, so we're going through all of the films on Martin Scorsese's companion list on Letterboxd. Um, so it's films that he would pair in like a double feature with his films. Ooh. So we'll watch the companion film and then we'll watch his film. So our first like double bill is uh, Cassavetti's film Shadows um, with Who's That Knocking At My Door? Scorsese's first film. So Amazing. By the way, so for all of you out there, there's a Cassavetti's connection because uh, Scorsese, well, Cassavetti's gave Scorsese a job on his on the set of I want to say Mini and Moskowitz. He was guarding the set, and then he was one. He was apparently well, Cassavetti's is a kind of you know, let's just say he was he was kind of like a larger than live guy. So you, you may have you may actually want to like divide everything that he says by two or something. But he he would he would go on and say to Scorsese, "Why are you doing these piece of shit Corman films? Do do what you want to do." And and, and then he went and wrote Mean Streets. Yeah. So so mm -hmm. it's you know like 
John Cassavetes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a Cassavetes connection to Fosse with Shadows. Oh, because yes. <laughs> whenever uh, Cassavetes was working with his actors and they were workshopping stuff, Bob Fosse had the suite above them. So it was stamping his feet and everyone was doing their big dance numbers and pounding pounding the floor above Cassavetes who was trying to work with his actors. So anyway. And also there's another Cassavetes Fosse <laughs> connection of Star 80 as well, right? You got us going. Uh, yes, but we'll, we'll save that one for the time being, maybe. So, so see you next Sa- week for the formal Casavetti's connections. <laughs> Should Sarah, we name this podcast for into Casavetti's connections? <laughs> yeah, we could probably. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and being part of this. It really, really, really was special to have you here. Okay, thank you, Jack. Where can people find you? Uh, you you can find me on Twitter. I also won't won't accept what it's called now, and I'm not paying for it either. You can find me on Twitter. And Letterbox, as well as Clapper, ltd.co.uk, uh, with the username at Jack Loot Sharp. Awesome. And again, Jack, thank you to you too for oh, being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. No, thank you. Awesome thank you. conversation. Thank, thank you. you, guys. All right, Jakob, where can our friends find you? I'm not even going to mention Twitter because I'm still detoxing and I'm feeling fine. Uh, you know, it's been like a month and a bit of me, of me not having Twitter on my phone and it just feels just lovely. Actually, the only the only thing that I honestly miss is like connections to like guys like you, as in like you know like Sarah and Jack and then Jackson and all these things. Like, well, the only reason I still keep my account is just because Tim like sporadically I'll just go in there and just like scroll and just like oh look, just posted something nice. Uh, and then I realized like oh there's so much toxicity. Bye, you know. And then you know that's kind of where I am. So like Yakub Flash on Letterbox and Flash on Film dot com is where you can find my shows. Also, that's where I am. Bye. Perfect. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I am on X at Randy Burrows. I'm on Letterbox. Mentioned the name that shall not be spoken. I did. Because <laughs> of there, I don't. I don't use it much. However, I'm there uh, for the time being, and it's not paid service yet. So I'll. I'll is it there. actually going to be? There's been talk. Yeah. Yeah. But we all so. know like Elon Musk is like full of shit, right? I'm so pretty I'm made... pretty sure it's gonna happen, yeah. It's gonna have yeah, different tiers. Being full of shit and facing economic realities and your own boneheaded ideas on how to deal with them are <laughs> two different <laughs> things. Anyway, uh you'll also find me on uh, Letterboxd at Brad Seven and my Facebook group Island Film Geeks. And check out our website, www.uncutgemspodcast.com, where you'll find all of our stuff there. Check out our Patreon. We've got the free episodes, Reminder, on Cabaret and The Exorcist. They're there. There are a few others. Heat from May. Check out those. Um, And next week, meet us back here where the Fosse Posse will be wrapping things up on the man's career with our hot takes on his last film, Star 80. So have a great week. And remember, you can go out with anyone, but stay in with us. And all that jazz. <laughs> <laughs>